like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. And in this episode, I will be giving an extended review of Dick's 1964 novel, Clans of the Alphane Moon. If you've been listening to this podcast, you'll know I often break up these novels into different parts. Um, but for a couple of reasons, I'm going to, at least for a few books now, uh, do them in one-off episodes. They'll be longer extended episodes, of course, so I can cover all the material and give my full thoughts about the book. But uh, two, two reasons for this, really. One is that I guess I repeat myself a lot when I uh, kind of break them up because I, you know, I, I kind of give recaps and I, I sometimes give a lot of the same recaps each time. And I don't know if that's the most efficient way to go about it. The, the real reason, though, um, I, I do like kind of the slow way of, of going through a kind of chapter by chapter, though. Um, the real reason I'm going to do at least a few books as one-offs is, is I'm currently preparing to, to, to move to China uh, to start a, a new job, which I'll be working there for a couple of years. I'll still be doing this podcast. That's not going to change anything. But, you know, for, for a while, I haven't had a full-time job. Um, but now I will. And... It, it may just be more practical for me to do like one of these novels every week, you know, kind of record it over the weekend. But that'll, that mean I won't have as much time to record um, for for the Philip K. Dick book club. So, you know, most of what Dick's written after 1964 are, are novels anyways. I think there's 25 short stories or so, but then about the same number of, of novels. So it will just uh, allow me to get through this series a little bit more quickly. But it also mean I won't have the multi-part episodes. But we'll see how it goes. We'll see how long this ends up being. Because um, the downside, of course, is I can end up with a very long episode if I'm not very efficient. But anyways, um, that's what I'm going to try to do. So this is just going to be a one-off one-off episode. The entire, entire novel, Clans of the Elfin Moon, will be reviewed here. Um, so this novel, of course, published in 1964. It's one of four novels Dick published in 1964. Um, it's... It's actually the, th the third of these four novels that deal quite a lot with mental illness, although it deals with it in a very different way. I think Martian Time Slip was a much more individualized look at, at one disorder. Um, I'm not sure we would now call autism a mental illness, but you know, Dick kind of threw schizophrenia and autism all, you know, all together in that book. So that's a very individual look at, at, at one. The simulacrum it also kind of has that individual look through the character of Richard Congrosian. Um, but there you've got, you've got this, this meta issue of, you know, whether chemical therapy or psychotherapy is more, more useful in the society turning away from the use of, of psychotherapists. Um, this novel, though, gives, I think, the most broad look at mental illness, and especially the way mental illness interacts with society. And I think particularly, I think what Dick's trying to say in this novel is, 
is mental illness is is rife in our in our society, right? Um, I don't know if he goes as far as to say we are all mentally ill. In fact, there's a one character who explicitly stated as as a normal, right? But even that becomes at the end of the novel sort of a category of mental illness in a very strange way. But mental illness in the society, the the titular society, the clans of Elfine Moon, mental illness is is a given. Everyone is mentally ill, but everyone every mental illness is able to fulfill a particular important social role right so you have an entire society defined by different mental illnesses so every personality trait or eccentricity we might have in our own society if taken to its extremes would be then deemed a personality disorder or a mental illness of some sort um, but you put them all together and you end up with a functioning functioning society right now we also have a debate not between chemical therapy and psychotherapy but whether we should have therapy at all, or we should just let the you know the the patients run the asylum, so to speak, um, and and that becomes a choice the characters have to engage in in the end. So this novel is really about um, that theme, I think, at, at its heart. Now, I will say the way it's approached is something that I think would make this novel very difficult to be published today, um, and in this day and age, it's very politically incorrect um, by our standards the way he talks about mental illness uh, it's very funny so he's often joking about these character traits there's a lot of i guess stereotypes of of mental illness among among the people who are afflicted and they're often used for jokes right um and the way it's structured we'll get into it pretty shortly but i think that's something that would make a lot of audiences today bothered by this that said this book is incredibly funny i, I think it's it's one of his funniest books if not he, the funniest of his books and, and in a way the entire thing kind of is you know gag after gag almost the the humor works very very well in this this book though so anyways, mental illness is a major theme. The other theme, again, this is something that's come up a lot in his 1964 novels. Um, the Simulacrum had it. Martian Timeslip had it. The Penultimate Truth sort of has it too. We'll look at that novel next. Is the examination of, of failed or failing marriages and the proper response of people to it. Uh, this one, again, he gets taken to the extreme and almost for comic relief when you literally have a scene where uh, ex-husband and ex-wife are shooting at each other. Right, and trying to kill each other. And that's the theme for much of the novel, or the plot for much of the novel is this effort to, you know, of, the, of an ex-husband to kill his wife because she's putting the squeeze on him financially and forcing him to take a second job to pay alimony and all that. So, you know, this is really much on, on Dick's mind and when he writes this novel. So I would say look, family and mental illness are the two major themes going on in in Clans of the Alpha Moon. But there's others as well. We have a little bit on the media. We have some on posthumanism. We have we have a simulacrum here, but it's never taken as being, you know, the question of, you know, is it human or can be a program to think it's human, like you see in some of his later nineteen sixties works. Here the simulacrum is simply just programmed and and so there's not much interesting to say about it, but there's a simulacrum here. We have the frontier being revisited and here the front we go back to like the optimistic frontier in a way and where the frontier is a place for rebirth or renewal or re rethinking institutions and societies um, particularly in how we deal with mental illness as a society is rethought in a frontier place and then our characters choose to stay on the frontier at the end um, which is a bit off of how some of dick's other works of the time started to look at frontier like martian time slip and 
the simulac the simulacrum is is a bit complex too. I, I really do think this is a transitional period where where Dick certainly has new ideas about the frontier, but he's also you know had ideas he finishes up that may have still been rooted in the old, more optimistic view of what the frontier can offer people by you know really cultural social rebirth. Uh, here it, it does that again, so um, we're back to that. We have a lot here on empire too, and and the Terran society just winning a war over the Alphanes is very much acting as an empire and trying to maintain its control over over far territories. Um, we got a bit on post-humanism too. Here the precog or the precogs and the other people with psi abilities are just there as tools, and you know they're not. I mean, they're just there as people with abilities that have jobs, right? The, the best example of this is a character named Joan Trieste, who has the ability to shift time back five minutes, and, and she just works for the police department to bring back accident victims and murder victims and things if she gets there fast enough. So she's, it's not really an analysis of posthumanism, and we see Dick a lot using just posthumanisms as plot devices or, or tools for, for various functions. In fact, here... She she ends up she's more important as as a love interest of our main character and what that means for her to his wife and how it makes his wife a bit jealous and contributes to their divorce proceedings and all that. It's more interesting. She's put there more for that than she is for um, actually her posthuman ability. There's one scene where where she kind of saves the day with it, though. Then we have. I guess fashion, I suppose, is a theme of this book too. Where especially we're given, a, especially with women. I, I don't think we get much about male fashion, although uh, maybe I missed it. Female, like fashion for women, though, is really described here a lot, and especially the trends and fads of female fashion. And and they have a lot of bizarre things like massive breast implants, like you know, gargantuan breast implants, nipple dilation, right? A lot of fancy clothing, like. There's one point where our main character meets an actress who has this kind of shimmering um, suit that, or dress that, that's always changing depending on how you look at it. So there's a little bit here on fashion, and it's presented as trendy and and you know quickly replaced. Like there's a lot of new trends going on, and, and people are body modifying themselves to keep up with the with the fashions. Although it's not clear how long any of those um, fashions will last. All right. Um, those are some of the main themes. Um, overall, I think this is a really, really fun novel. It's one I really love coming back to. It's it's just it's just joyous. It's 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 not politically correct at all. It's really, really fun. Its plot is kind of interesting. I think when how we see Dick able to take like a fa family squabble between an ex-wife and an ex-husband and turn it into a really profound question of of you know who owns the frontier and you know challenge to Terran and, and, and imperialism there's actually you can tell it's also kind of perhaps a, a novel of the Vietnam War era although 1964 I guess is still early early stages of US involvement but this question of like who should own these these territories right and you know, should it be controlled by the people who live there? Or should foreign occupying powers, you know, dominate? So maybe not specifically about Vietnam, but U.S. empire in general is is maybe being critiqued a little bit in the story. 
So with that out of the way, we should talk about the clans. Now, for a novel called Clans of the Elfane Moon, they, they kind of just show up in the first chapter and then they show up at the end. And I think there's one chapter in the middle where they're there. You you pick up this novel thinking you're going to get the this, you know, the mental patient society story because that's what you have on the title and you meet them right away. But then, you know, you don't meet them again for a while. And it's all about Chuck and Mary Rittersdorf and their marriage problems. Uh, and then they show up at the end. But still, it's important to talk about these these clans and the society we have on on the moon. Okay, so the Elfane Moon. Well, it's, so the plan the plan is Alpha. The system's Alpha, and so the the Elfane Moon is the second moon of Alpha Three. So it's often just referred to as Alpha Three M Two. Um, and so this place was, you know, back in the days like before the war with the Elfane Empire. Now the Elfanes are are well, they're just a bizarre species. We'll, we'll meet them later. Um, so, but Earth had this conflict with that. So these are the people of Alpha Centauri, right? And Earth got this moon, and then they made it a, a base for, uh, like a patient, a, a asylum for medical patients. And uh, they escaped, and, you know, Earth was never able to reestablish firm control over, over the planet, over the moon. I mean, and then they just kind of started forming a society and the way they formed their society was over their diagnosis. So each, each kind of group of mental patients formed their own clan, right? And then you join the clans based on when you manifest as mentally ill later in your life, right? And children are put in one clan until they're old enough to be diagnosed. And once they're diagnosed and they get put into one of the others, right? It's not really clear how many of these people really are mentally ill or if they just get deemed mentally ill, because they have to be put somewhere. Uh, in fact, by definition, everyone is is mentally ill in this society, even even the children. Okay, so let's let's talk about these clans. There are seven of them. So the first one we meet. So we, we they all have like a representative on a council. So that's the main representative of each clan we meet. I, I think in most cases we just basically know this guy with one group we know a little bit more because they're the religious people and, the, and they have a important function but a lot of these we just kind of represent it we're, we're introduced to like the member of the council and and that's who represents that that illness they also then have a town which is given a name based on some historical reference that seems to reinforce or suggest something about the about the the mental illness or the people that live there so um the first are the paranoids, the the pears they're called, and their leader is a man named Gabriel Baines, and their their settlement is called Adolf Hitler. So they're essentially named after Adolf Hitler, and the idea there is Adolf Hitler is was a paranoid, and and that so their main function in society is to basically be like the heads of government and to be the like the politicians. They sort of have the closest to like a capital because it's a very well fortified place. They're paranoids, of course, so they're always worried that someone's out to get them. So their best role in society then becomes to be the political class and the statesman's class. And that's what they do. So this idea that all of these mental illnesses on their own seem a disorder, but in a society, they actually function, you know. Just a little aside here, there's this book called like Snakes and Suits that a neighbor gave me to read once. I was having trouble with my boss. He says, you got to read this book. 
It'll explain everything. And the argument of the book is essentially that psychopathic or sociopathic individuals tend to do very well in corporate environments and and move up corporate hierarchies because those skills, whatever skills they have, are attuned very well to what it what you need to get ahead in in those kinds of, of work environments. And and I guess the idea here is a bit similar, is that, yeah, it seems it's a horrible thing to, to have this or to be a sociopath or whatever. But if you want to be a boss, it's, it's, it's very useful. And it's like here, I mean, if you want to be a statesman, being a little bit paranoid is, is perhaps, perhaps good. Anyways, um, that's the pairs. Then we have the manses, and these are the, the people with mania or the manic people we don't have manic depressives here they're, they're separated into different clans i don't know if they i guess i don't know if bipolar the bipolar was not identified yet by by um psychiatrist yet by 1964 but you know they're they're separate here but the, so the manses are the manias they're like the warrior class their representative is a man named howard straw and they live in a place called da vinci heights so they're kind of creative in in kind of an, they're like the engineers and this and the warriors and they have kind of the least unified society because everyone is, is is manic of course and you know a lot of in a way they 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 can't really they don't always finish their jobs so this makes them ideal warriors right better than long-term plans even though they do have this engineering function and their the name of their settlement da vinci heights suggests kind of this kind of technical creativity among the man in class. But, you know, if you know anything about Da Vinci, you know, he tried so many different things during his career, right? Maybe he was a bit manic himself or had a bit of ADD, right? He was a painter for a while and then he was like an engineer and, you know, he he often started projects and didn't finish them. He experimented in different things. He tried in a little bit of statecraft for a while. So he was doing a lot of different things. He's like Ben Franklin in that way. Okay, so that's the, the Manses. Um, they're very important for the plot. Um, the skits, schizophrenics, even these names are a bit <laughs> politically incorrect, but um, this is actually the name Dick gives them for these clans. Um, so the schizes, these are the people with schizophrenia. Um, they, their head is, or their, their agent, their representative on the council is a man named Omar Diamond. They live in a place called Joan of Arc. Um, so they're like the poets that class a little bit religious, but they're not really economically that well off. In fact, in the first chapter, Straw um, says, those cat skits are worse than useless. They're a drain on Joan of Arc's researches. No wonder your settlement's so poor. Poor materially, Omar agreed, but rich in eternal values. So that's, that's our opening statement about, uh, about Joan of Arc. Uh, the next settlement we get is, well, we could look at Gandhiville. Or Gandhi, is it Gandhi Town? Gandhiville. These are the heaps. So Gandhi Town. These are like the manual laborers. And these people, they're called the heaps. They're, dis, they're diagnosed with hebephrenia. Now, I had to go to Wikipedia for this. Hebephrenia is like the old term for that. It's actually a form of schizophrenia itself. But it's called disorganized schizophrenia so let me read the the description the condition also known as hippophrenia named after the greek term for adolescence and possibly the ancient greek god of youth hebe 
daughter of Hera. The term refers to ostensibly more prominent appearance of the disorder in persons around puberty. The prominent characteristics of this form are disorganized behavior and speech, including loosened associations in schizophrenia, or schizophagia, word salad, or flat and inappropriate effect. In addition, psychiatrists must rule out the possibility of canatonic schizophrenia. The most prominent feature of disorganized schizophrenia are not delusions and hallucinations, as are in paranoid schizophrenia, although fragmentary delusions, unsystematized and often hypochondrial, and hallucinations may be present. A person with disorganized schizophrenia may also experience behavioral disorganization, which may impair his or her ability to carry out daily activities, such as showering or eating. The emotional responses of people often seem strange and inappropriate. Inappropriate face responses may be common, and behaviors and sometimes may be common in behavior sometimes described as silly, such as inappropriate laughter. Sometimes there's a complete lack of emotion, including adhedenia, the lack of pleasure, abolition, lack of motivation. Um, so I guess that gives you the idea. I think that's close to what Dick is describing here. These people, you know, like the first one we meet, the representative of of the Hebe community is a man named Jacob Simeon. And when we first meet him, he's sweeping the floor and someone else asked him like, where's the representative for the Hebes? And he's like, it's me, but I just thought I'd sweep the floor because I'm here. And so they're given this image of being rather passive, not really motivated, um, weird facial expressions and, and manual labors. But they also have this kind of religious side to them. And they have all the real religious visionaries of the society. In fact, they have a group of people called the Holy Triumvirate, which is, um, which is Sarah Apostles and another man named Ignat Lebedur. These are the Hebes. And then Omar Diamond from the, from the Skitzes joins them and they become together the Holy Triumvirate. And they can actually manifest, you know, religious experiences broadly to other people and things. So they're kind of an interesting group of people, but Dick puts like the, the more religious attitudes among the, the skitzes and among the, the Hebes. Then we have the Polys. So the Polys are an interesting group too. Their delegate is Annette Golding and their, their settlement's called Hamlet Hamlet. They are, they're the most creative, actually. Um, the Manses have creativity, but it's, it's aborted all the time, right? The Hebes maybe have, uh, or the Skitzes and the Hebes may have some religious experiences, but it's not really in a creative way. The Polys are the real true creative class that can actually make stuff um, and create new ideas for society. Um, now, the interesting thing here is like everyone is a Poly until they're proven what their disorder is. In fact, the idea we were, it's highly suggested that most of the polys, or at least the younger polys, the ones, you know, who became children, or, or children were born, they became polys as children. They were put into the poly clan, and then they were never differentiated into one of the other clans. So they just stay there, and that they're probably just completely normal, right? And at the end, it's, it's talked about, let's create a normal community here for everyone else, and then the idea is that a lot of the polys would, would move there. And this is actually where the school is as well. Um, the final two clans aren't as really important. Uh, the depths, the, the people with depression, they're important in part because one of our major characters is, is shown to be a depressive 
person at the end. They live at Cotton Mather Estates. Cotton Mather, of course, a Puritan, a, a hardcore Calvinist, and you know, with Calvinists with their predestination, um, you know, believe always in the worst of what will happen. Their delegate is a man named Dino Waters. And then we have the obsessive compulsives or the opcoms. Their delegate is Ingrid Hibber, and, and they're like the bureaucrats of the society. So what we end up having here is, is all the major needs of a society to function, manual labor, protection, uh, governance, bureaucracy, religion, you know, poetry, writing. It, it's all dealt with. It, it's all here. There's really no part that's essential to a culture that's not in the, in the clans of the Elfane Moon. And I think Dick's point here is about well-functioning society, essentially. Um, so that, that gets our introduction to the clans and the novel. And so let's go into, into the story. Now, by the way, the Wikipedia entry, which I was actually just referencing for the clans, doesn't have much on the plot summary. It's, it's a fairly undeveloped uh, Wikipedia page, so it's not going to be very helpful to you. Um, but the book's fun to read, so uh, we'll go through it. Um, we'll go through it chapter by chapter. There's 13 chapters in the, in the novel. Um, it's, it's a rather quick read, uh, even though it's, it's, it's long. It's longer than the simulacrum, but it, it reads a lot faster, in my opinion. Anyways, um, we first meet Gabriel Baines, the delegate to the council for the, for the, the pairs, the paranoids. And the first thing he's doing is sends in, sends in a simulacrum to check out the room and to make sure it's safe, right? So the first act he does is paranoid. And really what this first chapter is, it's set up, of course, on Alpha 3, 3M2. And it's, it's introducing us to the clans, essentially. And every character is expresses some cliche about what their clan would be like and what those mental illnesses entail. Um, and there's a lot of bickering among the clans. You know, the, for everyone else, the Manses are barbarians. The pairs are cowards. The heaps are just useless, smelly, dirty. In fact, the, over the whole novel, Gandhi Town is described as dirty and, you know, expendable, useless. Um, there's like the Abcon representative always says one, two, three after saying certain things. Um, the, dep the deeps always assume the worst is going to happen, right? They're depressed, of course. They, they assume the, the world's going to the end or whatever bad things are happening are going to disrupt them. So anyways, what is, what's happening? Um, what are they here to discuss? So it's, they all meet for this council. Um, Baines is the first to come. Well, actually, I think Jacob Simeon was already there, but he was just sweeping the floor. He was the Hebe representative. Um, they all arrive, and they have, the issue they have before them is the appearance of an alien starship in the distance. And it seems that this could mean a couple things. It's certainly from Terra. So ship is coming from Terra. So what is it going to happen here? Well, perhaps it's military power from Terra that's going to come and then take the people on the moon, force them into back into the hospital, force them back into therapy, and it, that the, the the force them back into the mental asylum that they broke free from, or maybe lay claim, Terran claim over it. Now the claims on on this moon are complex because Terrans live there. So it's, it seems that Terrans have claims, but they're not proper colonists. They're not proper settlers because they were mental patients that, that were just sort of abandoned there. 
So this makes the claim a little bit dubious. So Terra may want to be laying claim formally to the Elfane Moon, and that bothers them too because they, they this may undermine their independence. So they really care a lot about their independence and the society they built up. They're very proud of it. They want to sustain it as much as possible. I'm not sure the size of it. You know, they have seven settlements, but we're never given really population numbers. And, you know, it's not really defined how big this asylum may was in the first place. But, you know, it could have been large. You know, they were using a whole moon as a as, as a place for, for mental, mental patients. And then we get the, the response to this. Uh, so Straw, the, the manic, the warrior class, tells them, you know, our armed ship is coming. Not a trader from Alpha, but from another system entirely. We used a teep to pick up their thoughts. Not any sort of trading mission, but here too. He broke off deliberately on finishing the sentence. He wanted to see them squirm. We have to defend ourselves, Bane said. Miss Hibbler nodded and so with reluctance did Annette. Even the heaves that ceased to giggle now looked uneasy. We at Adolfville, Bain said, will, of course, organize the defense. We look to you people, straw, for the technological devices. We expect a lot from you. This is the one time we expect you to throw in your lot for the common good. The common good, straw mimic, you mean for our good. My God, Annette said. Do you always have to be so irresponsible, straw? Can't you take note of the consequences for once? At least think of our children. We must protect them, if not ourselves. So let me just stop there. Annette, of course, from the Polys, they're the teachers and... Kind of the creative class and they're raising the next generation and so she thinks of the children all right moving on uh to himself omar diamond prayed let the forces of life rise up and triumph on the plane of battle let the white dragon escape the red stain of seeming death let the womb of protection descend on the small land and guard it from those who stand in the camp of the unholy so he gets into a kind of a religious prayer dina waters the de dep muttered hoarsely we're doomed everyone glared at him even jacob simeon the heaved howled like a dep Forgive him, Omar whispered, and somewhere in the invisible empty, a spirit of life heard and responded, forgave the half-dying creature who was Dina Walters of the Depth Settlement, Cotton Mather's Estates. And that's that's all that really happens in the first chapter, is this brief meeting of the different representatives, and allows us to learn about a little bit about how the society works. And then we don't see them again for like half the novel. Um, but when they come back, it's a lot of fun. So much of the next part of the novel is going to be about the relationship between Chuck Rittersdorf and his ex-wife, Mary Rittersdorf. So then in chapter two, we meet Chuck Rittersdorf. Chuck Rittersdorf works for the CIA, um, and his main job is to program simulacrum. So the simulacrum in this novel um, are not are simply just programmed, and they, you, people can control them from afar. So they're not automatons, really. They're just fake people that walk around and then they say whatever they're programmed or whatever people kind of can speak through them and chuck's a kind of an awkward guy he's not the best even public speaker but he's really good at like writing these scripts for these simulacrums so so that's his his job and mostly what the kinds of stuff he writes are simulacrum that will go behind the communist lines um you know and then spread propaganda so there'd just be people who would walk around talking to others with their propaganda messages to sort of influence influence public opinion um, so when we first meet him he's basically at a low point in his life and it doesn't get much better for, for much of the novel till the end anyways he's been refused an apartment that he's trying to move into he's he's moving into like the the divorced man's loser apartments you know they're where all the people who kind of have to pay alimony and 
you know, don't have a good job or whatever, can't afford to live in a nice place anymore, been kicked out of their house, they go to live, right? Yeah, and the apartment's really old. So we, we learned that Chuck's childhood was in the 70s, 1970s, and the apartment itself was pre-Korean War tile. So it's like from the 40s or something. And the main thing on his head is his ex-wife. He's separated um, from her. Now, Mary is a is a counselor. They both have fairly successful careers, um, but nevertheless, Chuck's problem is he has to pay all this child support and alimony, and basically that will leave almost nothing for him to to sustain his life. And this marriage is really overhanging his every, almost all his thoughts. Quote: This is on page twenty-one of my version. I got the vintage version of this book. The irony of their marital breakup was too much for his wife's profession, and she was good at it, was marriage counseling. In fact, she had a reputation here in Marin County, California, where she maintained her office of being the best. God knows how many fracturing human relationships she had healed. And yet, by a master stroke of injustice, this very talent and skill on her part had helped drive him to his dismal conapt. Because by not being so successful in her own career, by being so successful in her career, Mary cannot resist feeling contempt, which had grown over the years. The fact was, and he had to face it, that in his career he had not been nearly as successful as Mary. Um, yeah. I mean, he's kind of a low-end, I guess, CIA bureaucrat. He's not kind of on the high end. He's not in the administration or anything. He's a programmer for the simulacrum. He even claims that in this chapter that he's essentially a hack writer because what you write for this kind of propaganda is is kind of silly stuff, right? Cliche slogans about American freedom or whatever. So he's he's a hack writer. And this is actually one reason that Mary begins to think that he would be very good if he were to produce and write like television dramas. And she knows a guy named Benny Hentman who's a TV comic. In fact, she knows him because we find out later on that they had a brief affair. But she's trying to, Mary's trying to get Chuck this job with Bunny Hentman because it'll pay more and allow her to have a more secure source for her alimony payments because she's going to be kind of off on a charity mission for a year or two. She won't have an income. So she wants basically Chuck to support her life, her children's, their children's life, and, and if he can squeeze it out, maybe his own. And she wants, therefore, him to have a better job than the one at the CIA. So she's trying to get him this job with Bunny Hentman for his TV show. And because he's a hack writer, she thinks he could be good at hack writing for TV as well as hack writing for, for, um, for robots. And then he recalls this big fight they had over this very issue where she wants him to rise up and, you know, be the man he can be and not just be content with his crappy CIA job. And, and Chuck, who likes his job and is content with it, doesn't you know, is resisting this. And he's resisting it both because he really does like his job as a hack writer for Simulacrum, but also he feels kind of emasculated when his wife is the one, you know, encouraging him to to pursue uh, a better career. And then we find out the real reason for this is because she wants essentially to have a steady source of income um, after, you know, after the divorce. It, it kind of puts a shadow over the whole thing. Now, Dick has this idea, I think, he's done it in a couple other works, uh, of marriage being essentially an extension of the surveillance state. Um, where, And this, this novel has a lot of examples of that, where both, both husband and wife are spying on each other constantly using various techniques. Um, Chuck will eventually use a simulacrum to do it to a degree, although that doesn't last very long. Mary will 
use all sorts of means to keep tabs on him. And she's got lawyers and spy devices and private eyes and, and all these kinds of things. And basically, Mary comes to visit him at the Conapt, and he's surprised because he didn't tell her where it was. But, uh, you know, she has all this technology to aid her in keeping an eye on her spouse. And this day and age with technology, I even heard there are cell phones or cell phones can be programmed in such a way that a, a spouse can keep tabs of where where the other one is based on their cell phone signal, their GPS thing. So from your phone, you can see where your, your wife or husband is. And why would you only want to use that for, you know, if you, I suppose if emergencies, it was, I guess, the nice way to think about it, but more likely to, to watch them for, are they really at the office late or not? Anyway, here's what we got in, the, in page 24. It was easy to see how she had traced him. Moderate detection devices were available and cheap. Mary had probably gone to a previ, a robot detection agency, obtained the use of a sniffer, presented him, presented it his cephalotic pattern. It had gone to work, following him in every place he had been since leaving her. Nowadays, finding someone was an exact science. If a woman determined to locate you, he reflected, she can. There probably was a law governing it. Perhaps he could call it Ritterstoff's law. In proportion to one's desire to escape, to hide detection devices, end quote. That's a really fun idea, especially when we consider the surveillance state. Um, but this is the first really good look we have in all of Dick's work of a, of a marriage as an extension of a surveillance state. We've seen it in workplaces. We've seen it certainly with governments in some of his other novels, but, but not really this way in the family. So she comes to visit, keeping having kept tabs on him, and this is uh, a really miserable meaning because she's just berating him and pressuring him to take this job with Bunny Hentman, and she's fully honest about what she wants that she wants money to support herself and her children because she's not going to be having she's not going to be doing marriage counseling for a while because she's got she's on like a charity mission and of course this is must be really annoying for chuck who you know is keeping his job despite being married but as soon as she gets married she bails to go on this charity mission um, and expects chuck to to pull the weight of supporting the family and we learned that her job is basically going to be going to Alpha 3 M2, uh, where these mental patients have formed their own society, been cut off for two generations, but to basically try to study it, to enlighten it, maybe resolve this problem of ownership of the moon, and maybe get these people back into their their the mental hospital or treat them or whatever. So she's going to be doing that. It's an extended extended mission. And then she would have to basically live on a salary because she's not going to be getting any money on this, on this mission. So it's going to be at least six months, but perhaps longer. And she's very brutal here. She says, you know, I have the law on my side. The judge is going to determine that you can make more money and therefore can afford higher alimony and that I'm going to pursue that. You can talk to me through my lawyer. Um, I'll be gone. I mean, it's a very brutal um, relationship and obviously, uh, the flawed marriage or the, the marriage, the broken up marriage, the, you know, the emasculated husband, the, the powerful wife dominating the husband. These are themes that Dick comes back to again and again in his, his work. And they're, they're heart of kind of his window, his image of, of the marriage. In fact, if you wanted to write about Dick's visions of marriage, this is where you have to really start in a lot of ways. This, this novel is one of his most brutal depictions of of, of married life. So he's pretty miserable. She's going off to start a new thing and uh, have a new 
you know, part of his part of her life, and and Chuck is stuck in this crappy con app with this with his old job and and no money. Um, he does ponder a little bit and think about the the issue on on Elfane civilization. Of course, there has been a war, um, and this moon is like an outgrowth, like one of the unresolved issues from this war. And here's what uh, Chuck remembers. What was known of the moon's current status came from these Alphane traders. According to them, a civilization of sorts had arisen during the decades in which the hospital had been severed from Terran authority. However, they could not evaluate it because their knowledge of Terran mores was inadequate. In any case, local commodities were produced, traded, domestic industry existed too, and he wondered why the Terran government felt the necessity of meddling. He could imagine Mary was there so well. She was precisely the sort which turf plan the international agency would select. People of Mary's types would always succeed. So he, even this thought about what is going on there ends up being a swipe at his wife and her controlling behavior. So at this point, Chuck just decides to kill himself. And before he can do it, though, uh, a slime mold from Ganymede comes into his conapt. Con and he's one of the residents of this apartment complex, which they call discarded arms conapts. So because these are all the losers who show up there. And that sounds like a kind of an interesting place to, to live. And, you know, you meet all these different discarded uh, characters, characters with bad jobs, characters who get, you know, ran away from home or got a divorce, you know. So there, there's a lot of stories, a lot of things to talk about here among the people at Discarded Arms Con app. We don't get to meet too many of them, though. We do meet um, three important people, Chuck, uh, Joan Trieste, and and this Ganymede slime mold. So the, the slime mold is, is called, is named Lord Running Clam. We're going to learn a lot about um, Ganymede slime mold biology. So I don't know too much about these slime molds. Uh, I think they're they're single cell organisms that aggregate and and kind of can form one larger entity. Um, but that's that. Maybe a biologist or a botanist can can fact check this novel for for um, accuracy. Um, so he's he's there basically. Lord Running Clam is there to welcome Chuck to discard arms conaps. And what we learn is that these these are human kipple, um, you know the the leftovers, the people who don't have a clear place in society. Now Mary seems to think Chuck is destined for bigger and better things, but she she has her own private motives in doing that. Uh, Chuck doesn't think he's capable of, of too much besides just doing his job. But we see a lot of solidarity among these these people. The, the few people from this quote-unquote discarded arms con app that we meet are very much, you know, have a lot of solidarity with one another and they help each other and they become important friends over the course of the novel. Um, Lord Running Clam does invite Chuck to Ganymede thinking maybe he could get a new start in, in Ganymede. And then he says, well, then what you need is, is like a new woman or a new job or something if, if you don't want to have a new location. You just need something new in your life. I think that's fairly good advice. Um, but then there's a knock on the door and uh, a human woman, a Terran woman, is at the, at the door. Uh, and then in Chapter 3, we're, we're with Mary as she goes off on her way uh, and do, doing her business, preparing to go to, to Alpha 3M2. Um, she's actually first going to go to see 
go to the office of Jerry Feld, who's the producer of the Bunny Hentman show, and so she's going to try to get Chuck this job. So that she's just, she, her idea is that she needs to push Chuck to motivate himself to move up in society because he's not going to do it on his own. Um, we get a little bit here of fashion. It's all these little tastes of it throughout the throughout the novel, but they're really funny. And so she comes across Mr. Feld's receptionist, and, and here's the description we get. Um, okay, she entered the outer office in which Mr. Feld's receptionist, very pretty with much makeup and a rather tight spider silk sweater, sat. Mary felt annoyed at the girl. Just because bras had become passe, did the girl with so pronounced a bosom have to cater to fashion? In this case, practically dictated a bra. And Mary stood at the desk, feeling herself flushed with disapproval. An artificial nipple dilation, it was too much. End quote. And so this is the fad, I guess, at the time. This is the, the fad is nipple dilation and these huge breast implants. So I don't know why that's on Dick's mind. Uh, he thinks about boobs a lot, obviously. It's, it's a motif in his fiction. Um, but the bras are out of fashion, too, along, well, you know, accompanying the nipple dilation, I guess. Um, so she's trying to sell Chuck to Bunny, essentially. And she, you know, she's, she's successful, I guess. I mean, there's, there's all different motivations for, for why eventually Benny, Bunny Hentman does hire Chuck. Um, but she, she does, have, again, come back to this idea that he's, he's talented, but he has to be pushed and he's not really capable of motivating himself. I guess if he was one of the, on the Elfane moons, maybe Mary would have diagnosed him as a hepaphrenic, maybe. Um, wait, quote, Mary, this is what Mary says. My husband needs help. And I ought to know, she thought, it's my job to understand people. Chuck is a dependent infantile type. He must be pushed and led if he's to move at all. Otherwise, he'll rot in that awful little con app he's rented or throw himself out the window. This, she decided, is the last thing, the only thing that will save him, although he would be the last one to admit it. And then Hentman proceeds to essentially sexually harass uh, Mary. And this happens a couple times in this novel, so I don't know if this Dick is imagining this is just the way the... The, the entertainment industry works but in the me too era i'm sure this is not politically correct at all he basically says yeah I'll, I'll i'll get him a job if you make a side deal with me and the side deal is just to see you from time to time and she says well i'm going to the alpha system i won't be here and he says well i can't give you a job then and eventually he's able to negotiate her down to at least dinner and maybe something else after it so essentially it's it's heavily implied here that that Mary bought um, bought Chuck's job at Bunny Hentman's uh, for sexual favors, and I think she does admit at the end of the novel to have had an affair with with Bunny. So then she's um, flying around again, preparing to go to Elfane, the Elfine Moon. And she meets Lawrence McRae. He's a minor character, but he's like the PR guy for for the the Terran agency that's sending Mary to to Alpha Three M Two, and he's basically prepping her on what you're going to get from the press. And and this allows us to get a little bit more of a background of the politics of of the Alpha Moon. He says this: No Terran ship has visited for 25 years, and legally speaking. 
that terminates our land claim. The moon reverted five years ago to the political and legal autonomy. However, if we land and reestablish a hospital base with technicians, doctors, therapists, whatever else is needed, we can assert a fresh claim. If the Alphians haven't, and evidently they haven't. They're still recovering from the war, and of course, that may be it. Or they may have scouted the moon and decided it's not what they want, that the ecology is too foreign to their biology. So we learn here that the main goal of TerraPlan is actually to reestablish a formal Earth claim on the moon. And that means basically reestablishing a formal institution. In this case, it would be the mental hospital. And then, of course, if you're going to have the mental hospital, you need patients. And the patients would be these clans would be sent back to the, the, the asylum. So it's very much Mary is an agent of the state. For someone who complains so much about her husband, being a government agent and having a, a, a low-level bureaucratic job, Mary ends up, you know, being a, a associate of and a, an, a, an assistant to Terran imperial efforts in in the Alphane system. Um, she actually gives the operation the name, the Operation Fifty Minutes, because that's how long, I think that's because that's how long a, a session with a psychiatrist usually lasts, fifty minutes. Um, so she's going to she's going to psychoanalyze the entire planet, I guess. Um, she does find it, though. I mean, she's she's opposed to the idea of looking at these Alphane moon dwellers as like a subculture or its own in independent indigenous culture. Because the reporters ask her and they say, you know, by now they should certainly have developed their own culture and they seem to be doing fine without the need for a mental hospital. And she replies, I don't know enough about them yet. Perhaps when we know more, but it's not a subculture, she said. It's no tradition. It's a society of mentally ill individuals and their offspring that came into existence only 25 years ago. You can't dignify that by comparing it with, say, the Ganymedean or Ionian cultures. What values could mentally ill people develop in such a short time? And then McRae, he's the diplomat, he's the PR guy. He says, well, okay, if they do have their independent culture, if it's viable, sustainable, we'll, we'll let them be, right? But we can't diagnose them from here. Um, but Mary's attitude essentially is that of a doctor, that if someone is sick, they have to be healed. Sick people cannot survive sick. They have to be cured. Um, and, I, and I think, once again, this is, this is part of Dick's criticism, broader criticism of the psychotherapeutic profession, right? This, this idea of seeing everyone as sick rather than seeing society itself as, as, sick, as sick as the problem. So she goes back home, um, again, still preparing to go to, to the moon, and she gets a, a call, or she, a visit from the CIA people. And, and they're a bit annoyed with Mary um, because, of course, Chuck is an asset of the CIA. Um, and they don't want him killing himself. They don't want him driven to suicide. And she, they basically confront her on how they treat him. Um, she says, though, you know, he's always planning suicide, but I wouldn't worry about him. He's chronically ill, but never quite dead. Um, but they have these concerns. But Mary, she wants to stand up to the police. She wants to stand up to Chuck. She feels very bothered that she has to even waste some of her energy considering Chuck's mental health, which, again, is very funny. And it goes back to the thing Chuck said before that you can be a therapist, but you, you don't care about the she didn't care at all about the mental well-being of her of her own husband. In fact, she drove him to suicide and depression and, and perhaps insanity. She also assumes that it was Chuck who sent the CIA there basically to intimidate her and and change her mind about 
dump out the alimony payments. In fact, that's not what happened. The CIA has its own interest in, in Chuck and Mary and Alphine Moon and all that. So, but she just assumes it was Chuck sending his friends to, to intimidate her. And then as she pa finishes packing up her dresses for the trip to Alpha, Alpha 3M2, she thinks about how she's going to get back at her husband and how she's going to make him pay and suck all the last drip drop of water from the rock that is, at this point, Chuck Riddles, Riddled, Riddlesdorf. Okay, chapter four. Um, now we're back to Chuck's apartment and there was that knock on the door and he opened it and it was a girl, right? And this girl is Joan Trieste and she's been, she came over to welcome into the neighborhood, essentially. She's, she's really hot. Um, of course, I think it's pretty rare for there to be a major female character in Dick's fiction who's, who's not. Um, usually young, good-looking, big breast as often as not. But anyways, here, here's how she's described. She was, he decided, not even 20. She wore her hair in one large massive braid down her back, and it was brown hair without particular color, really just ordinary hair, and quite white, much too pale. And it seemed to her his neck was a trifle too long. She had no figure at all to speak of, although she was at least slender. Joan Trieste wore skin-tight dark pants, slippers, and a cotton man-style shirt. As far as she could tell, she had no bra, as fashion dictated, but her nipples were merely flat, dark circles beneath her white cotton fabric on her shirt. She could not afford, or she did not care to have, a currently popular dilation operation. It came to him that she was poor, possibly a student. She introduces herself as a, as a psi. Um, and she has a very particular ability. She's not a precog or anything, but what she can do is she can move time back backwards five minutes. And so this is not very useful. Um, and, you know, it, I guess if you, <laughs> if you have a bad date, right, you could uh, flip back to, to not say the stupid thing. Um, but she mostly uses it to help the police. So she'll go to an accident site, and if someone dies, she'll flip back five minutes to before the accident. Or at least maybe give to give paramedics enough time to to help the person. So that's her ability. We see it in action a few times. It's it's kind of cool, but basically it's uh, she's able to work for the police, and that's that's her job. Um, you know I don't the size and the size people with size power in Dick's early fiction are always seen as such a fundamental existential threat to to humanity. But by this point, they're they're just agents, they're just tools like any other skill. They stopped being the big threat um, that they were in, like, the Golden Man. Now, uh, Chuck eventually talks about his job, and he's a bit embarrassed by it. Um, he thinks it's kind of a low-status low job. Joan's a bit impressed, though. She's like, to think of it, your ideas are spreading throughout the world through the simulacrum. You know, I just help the police department. And Chuck actually talks about a really interesting theory, I think. And, you know, David Graeber's book, Bullshit Jobs, has, has just come out. So he's kind of talking here a little bit about bullshit jobs. Chuck says this, There's a law, which I call Riddersdorf's Third Law of Diminished Returns, which states that uh, proportional to how long you hold a job, you imagine that is progressively less and less importance in the scheme of things. End quote. Um, you know, David Graeber's main thesis in Bullshit Jobs is that there's a huge number of people in the world especially in the industrial world or post-industrial world, who have jobs that don't seem to have any meaning, right? Now, partially that could be perception, right? We don't always know our own importance. That's what Chuck's getting at here, but Draper seems to think they're objectively useless jobs. Joan Trieste vouches for the slime mold, Lord, 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 uh, Lord Running Clam, for having caritas or empathy. And, you know, he is going to be a good guy, a good ally of our, 
of our friends uh, over the course of the novel. So then people from the CIA come. So it's Joe, it's a guy named Elwood, Jack Elwood, and that, well, no, Joe, Jack Elwood is coming to pick him up and to take him. There's another guy, Pete Petrie. They got to take him to the office first and then they got to take him to the lawyer um, to talk about how he can defend himself from Mary or whatever. But the, the point here, the, plot, the important plot point in, in these meetings Chuck has is that he's basically given his next mission. And essentially what's going to happen is the CIA is going to infiltrate this mission that Mary's on to the, to the Alphane moon. And the way they're going to infiltrate it is with the simulacrum. And the simulacrum is... Is called Daniel Magaboon, and so Daniel Magaboon throughout the whole novel is just this robot that can be programmed with different things to say. And and Chuck is going to then from Earth program this and control this simulacrum, which is essentially going to be this this spy to help influence you know this encounter and the Alpha Moon to to benefit CIA and Terran interests. Now, Chuck instantly has an idea with this, and he figures that he can probably use the simulacrum to kill his wife and he actually commits in his mind to killing his wife using the simulacrum at this point in the novel he thinks that this can actually be a perfect crime because simulacrums do kind of break down once in a while and and go nutty and it wouldn't necessarily be traced back to him you know i i find it kind of hard to believe though because he's the one programmed to run it i mean wouldn't he be the first suspect aren't husbands always or ex-husbands always the number one suspect but he, anyways he thinks it can be a perfect crime because it can be done remotely by the by the simulacrum. He goes to visit his lawyer Nate, and he he wants to basically set up the gra the ground roots for his his defense. So that that's chapter four, um, basically setting up uh, the important what Chuck's role is going to be in this Alphane uh, Moon conflict. It's going to be really through running this simulacrum, Daniel Megaboon. Okay, so in chapter five, Chuck then tells Elwood, you know, his boss, that he will do the job and he will will program the Megaboom simulacrum and, and do all this. Because his real motivation here is to straight up kill his wife. Uh, he's still really likable, though, this character. Um, it's kind of amazing that so for someone to this model, he's got this openly declared plan to kill his wife. And, you know, he's still... Kind of likable guy. Still kind of a hero. <laughs> uh, he goes back to his apartment as that little crappy con app. And Bunny Hetman arrives. And he arrives with a job offer. Apparently negotiated with uh, Mary um, during that tryst that was referenced in back in Chapter 3. He denies wanting the job. And they end up talking about marriage and talking about Mary a little bit. And Bunny Hetman kind of gets some solidarity with, with Chuck by kind of talking about... Uh, the women and how bad they are it's like yeah it can be bad i know i've been divorced three times and each time it costs like hell the law is with the women that wife of yours she's attractive but i don't know she's sort of cold you know what i mean sort of deliberate i don't envy you a woman like that you want to make sure there's no legal entanglement with them when you get involved make sure it's extra legal you know limited to an affair but you're the marrying type i can see that you play fair a woman likes like that can run all over you with both treads that leaves you flatter than a worm's ass so now, in arrived Daniel Magaboon. Now, I don't think, yeah, obviously Chuck didn't have time yet to program the, the simulacrum. So I don't know if it's like default setting or it's like the, you know, straight up. It's just, just like the 
pre-programming you get it on, get it on your computer when you get it if he's just kind of running on that way or if someone had programmed him might these seem like empty shells to me um, but maybe they have some kind of baseline programming but uh, he comes in and then you end up with like a three-way negotiation where Magaboon tries to help Chuck negotiate this job and eventually they do agree upon the job bunny event you know makes different cases of why you should take the job uh, including the good money you know and and all that but he also at one point argues that comedy has a patriotic effect making america laugh is patriotic it helps the morale and defeats the commies in fact it's more patriotic than what you're doing here these simulacrum they're all cold flat balls they give me the creeps and then really funny is right after this magaboon says i agree but Mr. Hentman, there's another side to the argument, if I can take a moment of your time to explain. Mr. Riddersdorf, Chuck here does a job that no one else can do. Programming simulacrum is an art. Without expert programming, they're nothing but hulks, and anyone, but even a child can distinguish them from actual persons. But properly programmed, he smiled. You've never seen one of Chuck's simulacrums of action. It's incredible. Mr. Petrie does a good job, too. In fact, in some ways better. Actually, Petrie was the one who programmed this Magaboon. Because he does fool... Um, Hentman at first. Anyways, um, they're having this negotiation and eventually he agrees to, to, to take the job. So, but it has to be worked out a little bit more. Um, Joan Trieste arrives and Lord Running um, Clam arrives as well. And Lord Running Clam tries to talk Chuck out of murdering Mary, or at least he confronts him on his murderous thoughts towards Mary. And he says, you know, I'm going to help you. You know, I need you to do what I say. And Lord Running Clam, Clam tells Chuck that basically you got to take the Hentman job, but you keep the CIA job too. You do both. This will give you enough money to, to pay the alimony and to support your wife and all that. Um, but it will also let you keep your job at the CIA, which, which is what you want. And he, and he says... You get, the way to do this is to moonlight. You're going to have two full-time jobs, but you can manage this with drugs, that there are drugs available that he can have access to as a non-T, non-Terran drugs, that will let him keep Chuck awake long enough to, to keep going with both these jobs, both writing for Bunny Hentman and writing for the Simulacrum. And at one point, uh, Lord Running Clam says, this is such a good job, you'd be crazy not to take it, the Hentman job. You must be so just angry with your wife and so overcome by frustrations and anger at her that you're turning your back on what's possibly a very, very um, prime opportunity. Eventually, um, Bunny Hentman knocks on the door and gets back in, um, breaks into the conversation and demands to have an answer. Demands to have an answer uh, for the job and then he takes the job. So he now he's going to be moonlighting powered by drugs. Now, after this, to celebrate this motley crew of people, Joan Trieste, uh, Chuck, uh, the Simulacrum, and, and Lord Running Clam, the gelatinous, or the slime mold from Ganymede, uh, go off to the bar um, to celebrate. It's a nice moment. Now, Lord Running Clam, I don't think I mentioned this before, he talks telepathically, so he can read people's minds, and he often just talks psychically. So if he's having a conversation with you, it's not necessarily audible, right? It's just, um, it's all in their minds. And so Lord Running Clan learns that using his psychic powers that Joan will sleep with Chuck. And he kind of nudges, nudges Chuck to say, well, why don't you just, just, just sleep with her? Joan scolds Lord Running Clan for interfering. Um, so, but it's a nice little moment where they're all out at the bar. 
after the bar, after the night out, Joan gets we get to see Joan in action with her ability. There's an accident. And they go to to go to the scene, and she's able to use her ability to save the life. So again, the the two main ways these are used is like if someone jumps off a building, if she arrives on time, she can go back to the time, you know, before he jumped, and then it can be an intervention or something. So she can only do this over a small territory, a small bit of land, a small area, I should say. But, you know, and she'll only do it for five minutes, but so she has to get there quick. But we do see her um, use her ability to, to save the life, and then we get the little window of a medical simulacrum. Uh, so a lot of jobs are being automated by these simulacrums. So Chuck's, Chuck writes for the CIA ones, but it seems a lot of people have this job of writing, writing programming for these simulacrum because there's a lot of different simulacrum out there doing different jobs. Um, so then they go back to, to the apartment and Joan and, and Chuck have their affair. But it's interrupted by a man named Ben Afslam, who is essentially the lawyer. Yeah, Ben Afslam, who's the lawyer for, for uh, Mary. And he got pictures of, of the whole affair. So again, we could see the extension, marriage being an extension of a type of surveillance state. The lack of privacy people have. And in fact, I think Alf, Alfson basically tells them, like, there hasn't been privacy for anyone in 50 years. What are you talking about, right? So it's like, well, you work for the CIA, so don't talk to me about, about, about privacy. So, but, so this affair is kind of all on, on tape. Talking to Joan at the end of the chapter, though, he's really pissed off now uh, with Mary. He actually says, it is po still possible to perform an act in secret that no one else knows about. And he doesn't explain what he means, but we know he means this effort. He, he's going to try to kill his wife. And that, that's what's, that's his hope. So chapter six, um, I guess I said before, it's half the novel before we get back to Elfane Moon, but not quite. It's more like a third. Um, but um, in chapter six, we're back on Alpha 3M2. And here we're, we're introduced to Ignatz Leberdu. And he is... A resident at Gandhi Town, so he's a hepaphrenic. He's a member of the Hebes clan. Uh, now, of course, Gandhiville is a big slum because the hepaphrenics don't really put any time into maintaining their community. They're they're, they're the manual laborers, but they don't seem to clean up um, their own their own town. Everything here is kind of broken down, and there's really no plan to repair anything. There's a lot of kind of not like the the ennui is among the depressions, but this is just more like a, a lack of of desire to do much or, or be active at all. Um, even the relationships are very casual and flexible here. Um, quote, a woman from a nearby shack, she had been his briefly, but he had gotten tired of her after fathering two children by her, appeared and yelled into a frenzy at a big white goat had gotten into the vegetable garden. The goat continued to eat almost until the woman reached it, and then he bucked, kicked with his hind legs, and leaped away out of reach Beet leaves still dangling from his maw. A flock of ducks, startled by this activity, honked in various stages of panic as they all scattered and Ignatz laughed. Ducks took things so seriously. Um, but he's married to someone else, uh, Elsie, now. So he's had several wives. Uh, the children just sit around watching TV. It's, it's really kind of a bizarre, kind of slummish environment. Um, maybe like a really poor working class environment is how it's presented here. Um, but but it's very it's a very pejorative look at it because there's really nothing no one is doing anything um, in in Gandhiville. 
that's one reason it's so degraded right even like the child at one point asks for cornmeal mush for breakfast and Ignaz Leberdu doesn't even say anything. He just kind of lets the child not have breakfast. Meanwhile, he's kind of having these religious experiences and speculations and he kind of lives in his in his head having these kind of daydreams, these daydreams of, of religious things. So it's it's not a very pleasant society. Like people don't even wash themselves, right? The whole town stinks and the people who live there stinks. Um yeah, you kind of understand why why the other clans look down on the, the Hebes. But Ignaz Leberdu, for all his negative characteristics, does have visions, and he seems to have predictive visions. He saw, he had a vision of a monster stepping on Gandhi town and crushing it underfoot. And he shares that, that vision with other people. So he has all kinds of weird prophecies and, and visions that he shares with um, with um, with the people in Gandhi town that he lives with. But he decides he needs to talk to the other members of the so-called Holy Triumvirate, the most spiritual, the spiritual leaders of the clans. And again, it's Omar Diamond of the Skits. It's um, Ignaz Leberdu. And who is the third one? Sarah Postialis is, is her name. So these are, these are going to make this Holy Triumvirate. And they're going to meet and now they're going to try to predict what's going to happen with this approaching ship via the their, their kind of spiritual talents. And so they have this ritual and they, they see the ship coming and they, they actually talk about different ways that maybe they can use their powers to, to stop the ship. But nothing happens. The ship actually lands in Gandhi town. And they get out and the people from Terra will see this town. They, they really have a bad impression of it, uh, like everyone else does. In fact, uh, what a rundown dump this place is. You think that's all this way? That was how one of the men who comes off the ship um, says. Another one says, we'll, we'll help clean up this place. So th that's, the, that's the attitude of the Terran Empire towards this moon. It's that it's just a society that needs to be cleaned up. It needs, it's a problem that needs to be solved, right? It's a, it's, we need the, the firm lease on this land, but you know we got to clean it up. we got to get these people, these mental patients back into the hospital. That's sort of Mary's point of view of this too, that it's a problem that needs to be solved. Right. And in fact, these are these are a very, fairly complex society that's been created over several generations with its own internal logic and, and it sort of functions. Yet um, outsiders just see it as a problem to be solved. And um, that's not, that's unfortunate. Now, objectively, Gandhi town doesn't seem to be a very nice place to live, but it's part of this society. And the people that live there do have a function in this community. Anyways, they, it lands, and then we kind of flip to a meeting of the council at Adolfville. Um, you know, the same kind of council we met before. And, you know, Annette's there, and Baines, and I think Straw's there too. Jacob Simeon of the Hebes are there. And they are trying to decide what to do. Um, the man, no, the pairs, I think the man's too, essentially see this as the beginning of a full-blown invasion. They basically misunderstand what, this is about yeah it's trying to establish control over the Alphane moon for Terra but it's not like a huge like the, the navy's coming in with thousands of troops to to crush it it's basically a small party you know of of Terrans led by a psychiatrist and a marriage counselor but they interpret it as a full-blown invasion but there's a debate like you know maybe we should let them take let them come right what's the worst that will happen they'll, they'll conquer Gandhi town right we, we don't care about that um, but others eventually 
decide to work together. And essentially Baines, the paranoid who, you know, the statesman, the kind of the, the political leader of the group who's able to convince the clan that they need to work together to stop this threat, to stop this invasion as early as possible. So they're going to have to have a cooperative um, approach. And it's something Annette realizes is that working together, they're all going to have the skills necessary to stop this invasion. She says, I think that the weapons of the Manzas plus the organizing powers of the pairs in conjunction with the Hebe and Skits on Naturals will be somewhat more useful. End quote. So she thinks that there's a, a solution. There's a pair solution to, to this, and that is, that is the co cooperation and organization, organizing a defense along different lines. Okay, chapter seven. Um, so we're getting to the halfway point of the novel, at least by chapter counts. It's um, chapters. I guess the chapters in the second half are a little bit longer. But um, chapter seven is we start with Mary Rittersdorf and her group landing in Gandhi Town. And Mary starts to then diagnose the clans and diagnose the society, which is, of course, why she's primarily there. And she diagnoses Gandhi Town immediately as hepaphrenics. Um, she says, quote, yes, it's obvious. Did you see the piece of dead rat lying strewn around the door of the shack? I'm sick. I'm actually sick to my stomach. No one lives this way, not even in India and China. It's like going back 4,000 years. That's the way Sinanthropus and Neanderthal must have lived, only without the rusted machinery. So she's, she's disgusted by, by the hepaphrenics. And yeah, so this whole section, we get very long, very technical kind of how, how a psychiatrist or a psychologist with the diagnostic manual, you know, by their side might respond to this, this, this society. And of course, her whole intention here is to present the whole society as sick, as a sick society that needs to be fixed or repaired by, by you know, mental health professionals, you know, hopefully institutional, with institutional backing of a, of a Terran mental health hospital. However, she does betray this intention by, through her diagnosis, she comes to realize, and she's talking all this with Magaboon, who she thinks is a real person, right? She doesn't know Magaboon is a simulacrum run by her husband. So she's essentially talking to her husband about this stuff. Um, and she starts to realize that what we've already noticed in the first chapter is that this society might be able to function uh, through kind of harnessing the abilities of the different groups, the different mental illnesses, all have their own way of contributing. Uh, this is on page 95 of, of my copy, the vintage copy. Quote, the paranoids, actually paranoid schizophrenics, would function as a statesman class. They'd be in charge of developing political ideology and social programs. They'd have the overall worldview. The simple schizophrenics, they'd correspond to the poet class, though some of them would be religious visionaries, as would some of the Hebes. The Hebes, however, would be inclined to produce aesthetic saints, whereas the schizophrenics would produce dogmatists. Those with polymorphic schizophrenia simplex would be creative members of society, producing the new ideas. There could even be a, some with overvalent ideas, psychiatric disorders that were advanced forms of milder obsessive compulsive neurosis, the so-called disciplinic disturbances. These people would be the clerks and office holders of the society, the ritualistic functionaries with no original ideas. Their conservatism would balance the radical qualities of the polymorphic schizophrenics and give the society stability. And then Magaboon asks the question, how would this be different from society on Earth? And her answer is, I think, telling. Here's her answer. 
I have an answer. Leadership in this society would naturally fall to the paranoids. They'd be superior individuals in terms of initiative, intelligence, and just plain innate ability. Of course, they'd have trouble keeping the manics from staging a coup. There'd always be a tension between the two classes. But you see, the paranoids establishing the ideology, the dominant emotional theme would be hate. Actually, hate going in two directions. The leadership would hate everyone outside its enclave and also would take for granted that everyone hated it in return. Therefore, the entire foreign policy would be established mechanisms by which the supposed hatred directed at those that could fought that that could that could be fought and this would involve the entire society in an illusionary struggle a battle against foes that didn't exist for the victory over nothing well Bagaboon asked why is that bad and she says because no matter how it came out the results would be the same total isolation for these people there would be the ultimate effect of the entire group activity to progressively cut themselves off from other entities and then Bagaboon continues to ask what's so bad about that self-sufficiency autarky that's not bad she says no it wouldn't be self-sufficient it would be something entirely different something you and i can't really imagine remember the old experiments people made with absolute isolation back in the mid-20th century on and on and i don't think mary's responses are meant here to be convincing i think the magaboon's questions and they're essentially chuck's questions are actually quite good in a sense that yeah our society functions on the same kind of logic our statesmen are paranoid our bureaucrats are obsessive compulsive our poets are probably, you know, schizophrenic to some degree. Yet, you know, society then can still function by harnessing all these different abilities. Um, but she's trying to, you know, find something wrong with it. And she can't really find something wrong, it seems to me. At least that's how I read it. And it's an important conversation because it goes on for like five pages, this conversation between Magaboon and Mary, all about whether this society can function or not. Um, now, plot-wise, the important conclusion that Mary comes to at this point is that they will have to be forced back into the hospital. There's no way that this, these people would agree to treatment or agree to voluntarily resume a hospitalization, that they would be first fiercely protective of their independence, especially the paranoids and, and the manics. So they're going to have to be forced into, into the hospital. So then we switch to Chuck, who was logged into the Magaboon simulacrum the whole time. So he was basically having this conversation with his wife. And if you read it that way, it's rather funny because it seems that, you know, Chuck's just refusing to agree with his wife the whole time, right? And being troublesome. But she doesn't know it's him. And so it allows him to, to annoy her without and, and force her to question her assumptions and ideas without doing it face to face. So Chuck's moonlighting, right? So he has to log off of Magaboon and then he has to go to deal with his his job as a as a writer for Bunny Hentman, right? So he has to go work on the Bunny Hentman script, and Bunny or Bunny is the one who asked for maybe we could have a CIA character, right? Maybe you, you know this, you have this talent, maybe you this experience with CIA, so maybe we could use your insight to have a character, um, you know, based on a CIA agent, and. And Chuck runs with this, and he gives a couple ideas. One is a marriage, a female marriage counselor posing as a CIA agent in order to get information that will cure her patient or cure her patients. When he throws that away, he he gets the idea of a CIA simulacrum, and then he develops his ideas. Essentially, what he's planning to do of the use of a of a CIA simulacrum to. Well, the joke is to you, the simulacrum is sent to, it's Red Canada. So Canada is part of the communist sphere in, in this world. So send them to Ontario 
and he's programmed as a marriage counselor. So he sets himself up as a marriage counselor and he keeps helping um, these communist officials with their marriage problems, right? I guess that's the joke, right? These communists have really mundane marriage lives and then you got this CIA simulacrum helping them out and that could be the foundation for like a, a sitcom essentially. So that's that's the idea he gets. But he also proposes this other idea to Bunny Hentman having a drama or a, a plot based on the CIA simulacrum committing a murder. And this is kind of actually shocking to to Bunny and others. So they 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 prefer not to go with it. And then we meet some of the other writers that work with Bunny. But after talking about it for a while, they start to pursue that idea too. And that that's and they seem to kind of run with this idea of of a story about a CIA simulacrum murdering his wife. So it's basically projecting Chuck's own own desires. But it was really pushed along, it seems, by by Bunny Hentman and the other writers and this conversation, this kind of idea sharing conversation they're they're having. Now, during this conversation, an Alphane comes in and we get our first description of of the Alphanes. Uh, quote one of a race of chitinous Creatures who a few years ago had been locked in combat with Terra. Its multi-joint arms and legs clicked, but it's scuttling towards Bunny, feeling with its antenna. The Alphanes were blind, and then touching him, delicately stroking Bunny's face, the Alphane turned and moved back, satisfied that it was where it wished to be. Its eyelids had swiveled, and now it sniffed, picking up the presence of other humans. Now this Alphane is named RBX-303, and so they all have these kind of uh, license plate names. The Alphane questions Chuck on some of his quest, his hesitation to have a plot about, you know, the CIA murdering a CIA agent using a simulacrum to murder his wife. And he thinks, well, maybe you, you're, you're just reflecting deep down anxieties over, over you know, your, what you want and, and you want to expose. Quote, perhaps this plot idea arouses guilt feelings within you. Perhaps you have unacknowledged hostile impulses towards your wife. Anyways, um. It's not really entirely clear why an Alphane is here in Bunny's office now. But Bunny does say, like he's he's like a friend, but Bunny does say that he owns um, Pub Trans Incorporated, which was a major Alphane corporation and one of the major backers of, of the Alphanes during, during the war. So he was kind of like a high-ranking, powerful Alphane, it seems. Anyway, so that's uh, what's going on. Then they discuss casting a little bit and... and Bunny suggests uh, a woman, Patty Weaver, who's really breast heavy. Uh, the medics put in 50 pounds into her, her breasts. You know, so she has really big implants. Um, but she's the one that he suggests for, the, for one of the female parts in the, in the show. So anyways, this chapter really focuses on like the plans of Mary to subdue and get the, get the people on the moon back into the mental hospital and her overall diagnosis of the moon. And then we have this idea session in which different ideas are played with. And eventually they end up going with an idea that's very similar to Chuck's own plan and own, own goals vis-a-vis uh, -vis his wife. All right, then we go to chapter eight. Um, Chuck gets called into work and he's accused of moonlighting. Oh, no. So Elwood comes to his house 
to talk with him uh, about some of his concerns he has about Bunny Hentment and his job there. So I, I, at this point, they're not really that concerned about him moonlighting so much, but they're concerned about who he's moonlighting for. And they have they, so that he they start to tell some of the, or Elwood starts to tell some of the history of Bunny Hentman and basically that he seems to be a security risk. Um, he supplied enemies during the war. And so that RBX 303, that Alfane we met before that Bunny Hentman seems to like and, and, and think is a great guy, was actually a very powerful man on Alfane. In fact, perhaps a government agent working for the major corporations. And the CIA has deep concerns about why did Bunny hire Chuck at all? You know, because there's a million writers out there, right? So why, why hire him? And they think Mary's connected. And in a way, Mary is connected because Mary did seem to exchange uh, a sexual encounter for, for the job. Um, but it seems that RBX-303's goal is to secure the moon Alpha 3 M2 for the Alphanes or maybe get to the get the humans to leave leave the moon. Now the only way they can get the moon it seems is if the at least from the CIA point of view is if they can get the like Mary's group to leave take all the humans off the moon altogether. Right? If they stay there, if Terra establishes a presence there again, then they'll have the claim to the moon. So they need to get the humans to to leave entirely in order to have the claim there. But how to do that? And it's not really clear what the plan is, but the, the Alphans are described here as risk takers and gamblers. And that they'll try something. And it seems what they're going to try to do is entice Chuck to get the idea to kill his wife. And the way they did that is by pushing the plot for the story to be about killing his wife. What What's funny about this, of course, is that Chuck had already thought about killing his wife using the, the CIA simulacrum. So one of the CIA guys, London, uh, his name is, uh, this plot, plot situation is supposed to give you the idea of, to try to kill Mrs. Rittersdorf with a CIA sim. What Hetman and his Alphane buddies don't know, of course, is that a CIA sim is already on Alpha 3M2 and that you're operating it. If they, didn't already, if they did know this, they would, he broke off, then said slowly, half to himself, then they'd see there's no need to build up an elaborate script just to give you the idea. Because very possibly you already thought of it. After a pause, Elward said, That's an interesting speculation. I didn't come on to it myself, but eventually I would. To Chuck, he said, Would you like to give up your operation of the Magaboon Simulacrum to prove beyond a doubt that you have no such action in mind? And then, so they're trying to get the Simulacrum from Chuck just to, so he could cover his base, and if he's not running it, there's no risk that he'd kill his wife. Um, but Chuck, he gets very defensive. He doesn't like people telling him what to do, whether it's his wife or his boss, I guess. He's, he's just that personality type. And he says, you know, I'm not, you know, he doesn't want to admit that he had this really idea. So he says, no, I'm not going to give up my the simulacrum. It's mine. So uh, that this scene is kind of uh, uh, unresolved. But it's established here that the Hentman organization, through its Alphane context, seems to have some interest in the moon as well. And they're somehow, the CIA thinks, they're somehow using Chuck um, and the script idea and all that to somehow influence what's happened on the ground in in Alpha 3 M2. So they leave and then Lord Running Clam comes in to debrief Chuck about this meeting. And he's he's heard the whole thing, of course. He's a telepath, so he listened to the whole thing. And Lord Running Clam thinks that perhaps that perhaps Hentman is a latent precog and maybe he you know so I guess the idea would be Chuck had this plan to kill his wife. 
maybe he did it and then Hentman kind of realized it and saw this you know had this idea and therefore pushed it as a plot uh, d device for a show right but anyways it's not really clear they just have this little conversation and and again Lord Running Climb is trying to help Chuck out of his out of his problems professional and 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 professional and personal there is really one fascinating moment where Lord Running Clam accuses Chuck of pursuing this violent his violent intentions towards his wife, mostly because he he's kind of in the CIA and so it's kind of how the CIA solves their problems with violence and he's kind of internalized that strategy and he, he's he's wondering if there's not better ways to to do this. So anyways, then he goes back to just working on the script because he's got the script to write. And so the main character that they decided on is going to be named Ziggy Trotz. Um, and he doesn't like the name, but that's the, the name they went with. And that's and he, his opening scene is so funny. It's it's so it seems to be so reflective, drawn from life, just like Dick. I always draws from his own life, especially when dealing with these interpersonal things in, in his books. You know, he has Chuck doing the same exact thing, drawing uh, this scene from life. I, I'm convinced that this is something that Chuck experienced with his own wife back when he was married. Quote, he began with professional canniness to conjure up the initial scene. It, of course, would be Ziggy at home trying peaceably to do some harmless tasks. Perhaps Ziggy was reading the evening homeopath. And like some harpy, his wife would be there giving him the business. Yes, Chuck thought. I can supply verisimilitude to this scene. I can draw in years of experience. He began to type. Right, so then he starts to write the write the script. Um, he gets a call from after writing for a while. He gets a call from a, a woman, and he can see her. Um, it's it's Patricia Weaver, and very beautiful Irish features is how she's described. And um, so you can give her an Irish accent if you want, in as you read it. Uh, but she's the actress. She she's called. She's been cast already. So she already got the call from. From, from Bunny. Now, unfortunately, Chuck has not written anything for her part yet. And so he really doesn't have anything to give her. She's asking for her part. She wants to prepare and things. But he seems to want to, you know, sleep with her and seduce her very right away. And he, he wants to certainly just meet her because she is a hot actress. So he... He agrees to go meet her. And so he gets his address and he agrees to go meet her. Um, but first he goes... Uh, to the CIA because he gets called in to, to Roger London's office. Now, Roger London was one of the people who had been just in his CONAP um, previously talking about the whole Bunny Hentman situation. But um, now he gets called into his office and and he thinks, damn, my, the CONAP was bugged, right? And so they, I said something to Lord Running Clam that, you know, exposed something and now I'm going to be in big trouble, right? But instead, they don't talk about that. Instead, they just said, like, the only way you could be moonlighting like this is if you're on drugs. And the only drugs that can do this effectively and keep you alert are non-Terran drugs. So you must have a non-Terran connection, and that's illegal. So you're a security list risk. So you're going to be suspended. You're going to lose the Magaboon simulacrum. And so he loses the chance now to kill his wife using the Magaboon simulacrum. He regrets that he didn't act on this earlier he also realizes that if it's true that hentman hires him just because of his connection to mary and just because of the simulacrum then he might lose his job there because he's it's the theory that the cia has been going on and that chuck begins to believe was that 
Hentman hired him simply because of his CIA connections, right? And his connection to his wife. So, you know, if Hentman finds out he lost his job with the CIA or was suspended, then Hentman will fire him too. And then he'll be even worse, uh, a worse situation. But, you know, he says, you know, I'll do the best with my situation. He's going to go see Patricia. Uh, he's going to go follow through on his meeting with Patricia because he's going to assume he still has the Hentman job for now. Okay, so in chapter nine, uh, he goes to Patricia Weaver's apartment, and um, you know she's very fashionable. It seems she's got all this neo pre-Columbian furniture based on Incan culture. She's got this dress. Um, how was it described? It was. This was a bit over his head. The elaborate, expensive dress, the hand wrought furnishings. He stood facing the painted painting watching its non-objective surfaces slide and altered forming entirely new and never to be repeated combinations oh the dress is described here sorry she um she wore and this seemed odd for so early in the evening a high fashion paris dress the like of which he had witnessed in magazines but never before seen in real life this was a long way from the dress at the cia the dress was lavish and complex like a petals of a non-tea flower it must have cost a thousand skins chuck decided this was a dress in which to get a job her right breast, firm and untilted, was totally exposed. It was very fashionable dress indeed. Had she been expecting someone else, Bunny Hetman, for example? Apparently not, because uh, everything is kind of out on the table. She, she reads the script, and she's upset that there's not more for her character. In fact, the, there's another female character that has a bigger role. Like She's not playing the wife, right? So she wants a bigger role for herself. And she makes this non Terran is drink with non-Terran kind of ingredients, and so that's kind of cool. It's got a mix of GB40, which is the stimulant he's been using, but then it's mixed with some kind of non-tea tea stuff. Um, finally, he, after drink the drinks, he agrees to to expand her role, and she actually they share some ideas. So there's a little bit of a brainstorming session, but it really doesn't matter because it's all about sex here. Uh, the minute he says, like. Okay, I'll expand your role. She like go, takes off her clothes and goes to the bedroom, right? It's it's almost instantly. So it's it's like, you know, right away the minute he agreed to a higher role, she she agrees to have sex with him, and so she goes off, takes off her clothes, and she, um, and we get a better description of her breasts here. Both breasts you saw were an ideal size, albeit for the most part synthetic. As she walked, they did not wobble in the slightest. The left as well as the previous exposed right were strikingly firm. So um, everything's going well. Um, Chuck's about to, to get laid when Bunny calls and she talks to Bunny for a while and then she starts to put on her clothes again. And then Chuck's like, well, what's wrong? And then she says, well, you're fired. You've been fired by Bunny. Bunny called to say the job's off. Now, the justification Bunny gives is just that it was bad. The writing was bad. And therefore, you know, the first draft, whatever that that Chuck sent was so horrible that that they weren't going to use it. Um, but it seems that there's another motive in firing Chuck having to do with his wife and the Elfine Moon situation. So it seems the CIA was right that he was hired really for, for a different motive. Um, now he makes a, a, ha a handful of phone calls after this to talk about his problems. He calls Joan Trieste. He calls uh, Lord Running Clam. And then he calls back to Joan again. And Joan tells him to look at the newspaper. And he looks at the newspaper and Hentman has been arrested by the CIA. So just moments after Hentman fires Chuck, a CIA man, 
Hentman gets arrested by the, or, or gets attempted to be arrested by the CIA. He gets away. There's like a shooting battle. Uh, none of it's on screen. It's all just talked about via the, the newspaper. So there's a running laser battle as Bunny Hentman gets away and he flees. And the question is like, where is he going to flee to? And so this leaves Chuck. Well, Chuck realizes that Hentman is going probably to the Elfine moon because he seems to have context there and he's kind of a secret agent for the Elfines. Chuck, meanwhile, realizes that his life is essentially over. He's lost both of his jo jobs, and he has nothing um, um, for him. Uh, really no future. He, d he thinks that maybe Pat, Patty Weaver, the woman he just uh, met to, you know, the actress, might have, might know where Bunny Hetman is. So he calls her and tries to come up with an excuse like I left the script there I need to come back and she tells no I'm not gonna let you come back over um, and she basically says Benny called after the CIA made their arrest attempt and so everything's exposed she goes to he goes to her apartment actually and then claims to be a CIA agent and says I'm gonna arrest you you know because you're conspiring with with Bunny Hentman she doesn't believe him she completely rejects that and she pulls out a pistol and 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 gets him out of there so he fails again he fails at even pretending to be a CIA agent and he just goes home and Joan is is in his apartment now for a moment in this conversation like Joan wants to help um, Chuck but the kind of Joan morphs into his wife almost in a lot of ways and you know, she starts to be very demanding and telling and giving him advice and saying, you should do this, you should do that, you should call that guy, you should get help from Lord Running Climb or whatever. And, you know, it almost becomes a berating encounter, which is very reminiscent of how Mary deals with, with Chuck. I don't think it's, like, in the text dealt with, like, in Chuck's mind, how he responds to it, if he's seeing his wife in Joan, but that's how I kind of saw it. And how I kind of experienced this conversation is just for a man who's been so much of his life dominated by other women. And one thing he liked about Joan Trieste is that she seemed to respect him and not tell him what to do. Has become very bossy at the at this scene. But anyways, this scene is interrupted by a man coming in. He's one of Hentman's goons. Hentman's goons. He's coming essentially to arrest or to to take to seize to collect Chuck. Um, during the fight that breaks out. The man shoots Lord Running Clam and, and dissolves him and vaporizes him. So Lord Running Clam appears to die. Um, and the man takes Chuck away. Eventually, though, Joan Trieste is able to use her ability, the, the, the five minutes backward in time thing, to save Chuck. And, and, and the man ends up dead. And so Chuck is saved and the assassination attempt is, is, is stopped. Um, he asked, why didn't you save Lord Running Clam? I've just been kidnapped. I'm not dead. And she says, well, it's okay because she's collect they collected some spores of Lord Running Clam. So it seems when they die, they, they send off their final spores, which can then be cultivated. Um, at this point, he decides what to do. You know, Kentman's probably going to send other men for me to collect me. So he decides to go to the Elfane Moon. And he calls the CIA and, and gets them to agree to support his mission to go to Alpha 3 M2. The deal he gives is he says, I'll, I'll let you know where Hetman is. I know where he is, and you want to find him. And he actually lies to him. He tells him that he's on the moon. Yeah, the wrong moon, anyways. He says he's on Luna. Um, at Brahe City on Luna. And so Elwood says, you know, well, you'll have a ship then. Um, 
he thinks that uh, Luna might, you know, by by sending the CIA to Luna, he might have time. Um, and we're reminded of, of how powerful the surveillance state is. And we've seen it applied mostly by uh, like Mary and her kind of control over Chuck. But we've also seen a little bit in, in Chuck's worry that his house was bugged and things like that. Uh, the media is certainly omnipresent here, here too. Um, so this is after talking to getting making the deal with the CIA. Um, Dick writes this. Breaking the connection, Chuck went to pick up his burned down cigarettes from the edge of the living room coffee table. Well, if the ship didn't show up, then that was the end of it. He had no other plans, no alternative solution. Joan Trias might be able to save him again, might even be able to bring him back after a nert of Hentman's had actually killed him. But if he stayed on Terra, eventually they would find and destroy him, or at the very least capture him. Detection devices were simply too good now. Given sufficient time, they always found the target if it was still somewhere on the planet. But Luna, unlike Terra, had uncharted areas. Detection always there always posed a problem. And there existed remote moons and planets where detection by anyone was a near impossibility. One of these areas was the Alpha system. For example, Alpha 3 and its several moons, including M2, and most especially M2, had with the CIA faster than light ship you could reach in a matter of days. As had Mira with, her gang, with the gang of her. So he thinks he can hide out there from, from Bunny Hentman. Actually, looking back, I'm not sure how he knows Hentment is on the moon. Maybe he just knows from, from some other conversation. I missed it. But he, he, he tells the CIA that you can, you can find Hentman on the moon. I'm going to, to Alpha. And he just mostly wants to get away. Um, so that gets us to then chapter, chapter 10. Uh, the rest of the book is set on, on Alpha 3M2. So in chapter 10, we begin with this meeting of this council on, on the moon of the clans, and they're talking with and negotiating with Mary Rittersdorf. And Mary Rittersdorf already believes that the only solution to um, is the suppression of these clans, right, and sending these people back to the, to the hospitals. And if force, force will probably be required to do that. They... They say you could stay in Gandhi Town for now, but you can't visit any other cities, any other of the settlements, and you know. And they actually give a full manifesto where they kind of declare their essentially declare their independence to to Mary um, Rittersdorf. Baines, however, is is instantly attracted to Doctor Rittersdorf. Um, quote. Uh, and he wondered idly if the fact that she had arrived without her husband signified anything. She was, in fact, sexy and an inexplicable incongruity considering the purpose of this meeting. Dr. Riddersdorf wore a distinctively feminine outfit, black soda and skirt, no stockings, gilded slippers with turned up elfish toes. The sweater veins observed was just a fraction too tight. Did Mrs. Riddersdorf realize this? He could not tell, but in any case, he found his attention drawn away from where she, what she was saying to her well-articulated breasts. They were admittedly small, but quite distinct as regard to angle. He liked them, end quote. But even in that little passage, he's got the paranoia. He's like, does she know she's dressing that way? I mean, he's even paranoia, uh, got paranoia about how um, Dr. Bittersdorf dresses. Um, the, and they, they demand, though, the, the clans have agreed to demand that the moon or that the Mary's group leaves the moon within 48 hours. And in the meantime, they can't leave Gandhi town. Right. And the main argument they make is one that we've heard before uh, by Magaboon or by Chuck through Magaboon, that essentially that these maybe are a, a perfectly well-functioned, adjusted society that, you know, when we were deemed mentally ill, that was one thing. But now 
we are a society, right? We have these complex interpersonal relationships. We can work together. They're, they're not sick. There's group workability here is the claim. And, and it's Baines that makes this claim. He's like the, the spokesperson for, for the clans. Dr. Riddosaur says, you're admittedly united against a common enemy, against us, but I'd be willing to place a bet that before we arrived and after we depart, you'll be fragmented and isolated individuals, mistrustful and frightened with each other, unable to cooperate. So the claim she makes is that only they can only cooperate for like a war, not anything else. And actually, isn't this true of societies to a degree as well? I mean, I, I'm a little bit more optimistic about society than I think Dick is here, but you know, societies come together in wars in ways they don't normally come together, right? You know, during World War II, the the, the marginal tax rate in the United States was like 95%. You know, basically, you know, heavy, heavy taxes on the rich, right? Class war was not absent during the war, but it was muted to a degree. And yeah, after the war, you know, class conflict reemerged, right? And free enterprise gets promoted again. And the conservatives start to fight against the New Deal, and, and that's been an ongoing project. So, yeah, there's, you know, people during times of conflict and crisis can come together in ways they might not normally. Um, but that's not just a product of people being mentally ill, right? That's, you know, how society seem to function. They even say, like, we are in constant trade with the Alphanes. It's, you know, we're, we are interacting with the rest of the world. We're not isolated individuals. We're not dysfunctional. And, but Mary Ritterstorff insists that, no, we're going to have to impose therapy on you and you're going to have to be fixed and corrected. And again, Mary's fixing a problem that doesn't really exist. The, the clans are successful colonists for all intents and purposes. But uh, essentially, the meeting ends with an inability to come to any conclusion. Mary demands access to Da Vinci Heights, which is the head of the, the Manses. And that's, of course, the middle military um, where the military activity is. That, so that's where their fighting is going to, to begin. Um, when that fails, um, Mary, Mary leaves just with this threat of, of force. Now, Baines, after the meeting ends, they, the clan's representatives all hang out together and they talk about their plan. And essentially, Baines has this off-the-wall plan. I, of course, he's, we, previously, we learned that he's attracted to Mary, but he says, I'm going to seduce Mary. And that's going to somehow solve the problem, the political problem. They don't really debate the plan. Straw, Howard Straw, the soldier, thinks it's ridiculous. But, um, you know, it, it seems they're like, okay, try it. You see if it'll work. Now, Dino Waters, the dup, actually talks about, you know, you, maybe you can get help from the heaps from Gandhi Town because they're all promiscuous anyways, and it's it's kind of funny. The impression of the he hebephrenics as as promiscuous. We've already seen Ignaz uh, Lebedur, the one of that that holy man. You know, he had a bunch of different girls in his life. He says, after all, where he is, that's where he is in Gandhi Town, where anything goes. Everyone has children by everyone. And by now, she may be in the spirit of the thing. So the fact that she's in Gandhi town, he says, well, maybe she'll she'll just be DTF because she's hanging out with the, you know, the Hebes. Um, so anyways, uh, Baines then goes to Lebedu um, and asks for help and how he can seduce uh, 
Mary, get her to sleep with him. And, and Lebedew essentially gives her, gives him a, a love potion, you know, a drug that he can sneak into her drink that will make her want to have sex with him. He eventually visits Mary and gives her the potion and they do have sex. But for a moment during this encounter, well, actually for the whole encounter, Mary becomes like a, ma- a maniac and she becomes crazy and she's biting him and beating him. And it's like a horrifying experience for poor Baines, who's a paranoid and, you know, thinks she's going crazy on him. So he's totally traumatized by this experience, all the biting and the, the, the wild sex. And in fact, he leaves not even with his clothes. He, he doesn't even get his clothes and he's like wandering around. Finally gets in a cab and he's taken in to Ignance Lebedew, who kind of, you know, he wants to somewhat get back at him because he thinks that Lebedew planned this with that potion that he gave him. He wants to get back at him for this. Um, and Lebedew then is able to report that the ship had left Gandhi Town and it was approaching Da Vinci Heights. And Lebedew says he had another vision of another ship coming, this one, a military warship that will be able to take take. Da Vinci Heights. And when he realizes the, the threat to uh, Da Vinci Heights, he, he realizes the important role that the, ma- the mans is play in their society. He thinks um, Da Vinci Heights has been invaded, perhaps has already fallen. What was left? How without the fantastic energy of the Manses clan could they survive? If perhaps the single non small non-Terran small Terran ship meant something, might it not be hope? At least it was unexpected and within the realm of the expected they had no chance were doomed he was not a skits or a heap and yet he had his own dim way in his in his vision too he had a vision of the off chance that one possibility plucked from the many his first plan had fallen through but there was still this he still believed in this and he didn't know why now what we see here with baines and we're going to see it a little bit in chapter 11 with annette golding is characters who have been diagnosed one type of of in one clan start to feel they have characteristics of other aspects so when chapter 11 opens we're with with annette golding thinking about the 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 attack on da vinci heights and what that's going to mean for her society and she starts to think about suicide and she starts to think that maybe i'm actually a dep or you know maybe i'm you know, and she thinks I admire the Manzes, you know, right? Theoretically, I'm a poly, but she seems to have other characteristics. In fact, Annette Golding probably isn't mentally ill, at least it's heavily suggested in the book that she's not, that she was just put in the poly clan, you know, as a child and, and left there. So the, as the fighting is breaking out and Annette is kind of wandering around, wondering what to do and how they can resist and what hope there is for the clans, it's at that moment that she sees she sees Chuck, right? At, at this point, he's just a man, but he's burying Lord Running Clam. It was something that I think Joan Trieste and Chuck talked about earlier on. That maybe in the in the different climate of of Alpha the Alphane Moon, that Lord Running Clam might be able, to, or the, the slime mold collective consciousness in the slime mold might be able to um, grow faster there. So he's actually burying Lord Running Clam. And Annette talks about how she actually studied slime molds. So she, you know, is able to help him and give him advice on how to do this. And even in this crisis, though, she's got this kind of romantic air in her. She's very much like a poly in that way. She says, how wonderful. I find this terribly exciting. 
Don't you love this? The night smells, the air, the sounds of the creatures, little ones like hip frogs and bell crickets stirring around. And they, and then this, making these fungi grow instead of just letting them die. You're very humane. I can tell that. What's your name? And so that's the introduction between Chuck and Annette. Not long after, the, the slime mold awakens. And, and it is essentially Lord Running Clam. It's kind of like a collective consciousness that endures. And so each... The way it seems to work is that each offspring of the slime mold is Lord Running Clam, but only the eldest or the first one grown, the firstborn, takes the formal name and the formal identity of the parents, but the others kind of extend off. So there's kind of a generational collective consciousness almost. Um, and so Lord Running Clam is back, essentially, for all intents and purposes. And he talks about how, thanks for bringing me to this moon, that my people or you know, my slime molds, uh, will able to to actually expand to this moon. So, this moon, which was kind of a human clinic, becomes more diverse by you know that uh, mental hospital that becomes a little bit of a society of these mentally ill clans, people you know, mentally ill people formed in clans. By the end of the novel, it becomes a much more diverse place, right? More humans come, humans who don't associate themselves as mentally ill, and slime molds uh, come too. But they've diverse. He, he's really thankful. Lord Renicon's very thankful for the help he's had in diversifying the location, carrying his people far from from Earth. So it's a frontier for the, the the creatures from Ganymede. So we get a little bit of frontier optimism here, which I always like to see in Philip Dick's work. I I understand why he turned on the frontier and by the mid '60s, but there's still signs that there's there's still hope. You know, there's still this need to to find the next frontier, the next border to cross. Lord Running Clam uh, talks about the evolutionary goal of the slime molds and then also warns them of, of the fighting breaking out of that maybe there's gonna that there's gonna be a man's a man's attack. Meanwhile, Gabriel Baines tries is trying to get back from Gandhiville to to Adolfville. He thinks a lot about Annette Golding and he and he wants to travel also to to Hamlet Hamlet to maybe check on her. But thankfully, on the way, he, he runs into, into Annette and Chuck, so he doesn't have to seek her down. Um, now, they start to take fire from a, a, a man's unit, but it seems the man's, you know, they're maniacs, they, they're, or the maniacs, uh, not maniacs, maniacs. They don't really, I mean, they're, I guess, soldiers who can kind of shoot at everything, but don't always, aren't the most well-targeted. Um, they probably are very good at copper bombing. Lord Running Clam tells them that, yeah, you're being shot at, but it's not, they just misunderstand, right? They're not your real enemy. Mary's the real enemy here, and they're, they're still foundation for a collective uh, resistance. Here's what the uh, slime mold says. You are mistaken, Mr. Baines. The soldier who fired the missile did not intend to hurt you. Before he fired, he made a careful calculation, or so he believed. You must beware of seeing malice behind accidental injury. At this moment, he is attempting to reach you and drag you from your flaming car, and those with you as well. If you can hear me, Bane stop back, help me. I can do nothing. I'm a slime mold. I can't help uh, under any circumstances approach the flames, being too heat sensitive. Two of my brethren had, in fact, already perished trying. I am not. I am not trying at this time to spotify, sporify again. Anyhow, if I were to try to save anyone, it would be Mr. Ritterstorff. There with you at the car, the man from Terra. So the slime mold is telling Bane's not to not to despair that the the clans are are breaking down. Now, to complicate this situation even more, 
Bunny arrives and, and Bunny Hentman arrives with his ship and it's actually got a robot, uh, not a robot, a rabbit totem on the side, like a sigil um, of a rabbit, you know, Bunny Hentman for, for his name. And Baines begins again, uh, the paranoid feels more and more despair at the, mm-hmm. the situation they're in, they're doomed. That they got the Manses who they're not really trustworthy, Mary, and then you got this bunny ship arriving all against them right and maybe the terran military is also coming in to to lay claim to the moon so he's really despairing about what how they can fight all these different forces at this moment he sees he starts to think that annette's going to die in this fighting and he's really sad about that um and then the three the three holy triumvirate come right sari apostolates omer diamond and ignatz lebedur they arrive and they're going to intervene. They claim they're going to intervene and sort of save the day. He says, have faith in us, Gabriel. We will see that you are conducted very soon, cycle comp wise to safety. He says, no, no, help Annette Golding. And she says, oh, she'll be saved too by the same agency. And then just at that moment, Bunny, Bunny Hentman's ship begins to land. Um, and that's the end of chapter 11. So actually, one more thing about chapter 11, though, but th- there's actually moments in which Mary's like shooting at Chuck and, and they're firing back. So there's the spousal conflict manifests into actual shooting war in, in chapter 11. Um, it's in chapter 12 that the, the main kind of action of the novel comes to the end. Um, with the arrival of Bunny, Hentman... Um, Magaboom calls the CIA and informs that that Bunny is here, and he's given orders to to approach the Hentman ship and attempt to to arrest Mr. Hentman. And then she sees she sees Chuck down with Annette Golding, and and you know she reflects a little bit on what's happened, and she starts to actually regret a lot of what she's done in her relationship, and she just thinks she was approaching it wrong. Um, I should get away, she said to herself, before he does do it, that is, kill him or kill her. Where can I go? The big warships can't come in because those lunatics and maniacs have had that shield up, and they're still trying to trace a path through it, I suppose. Whatever the reason, she had lost contact with the Terran military. And now Megaboon had gone. She no longer could reach the line ship through him. I wish I was back on Earth, she said miserably to herself. This whole project has turned out terribly. It's insane. Chuck and I trying to slay each other. How did something ghastly and psychotic like this develop? I thought we had managed to separate. Didn't the divorce accomplish that? She thought I should never have had my attorney bobbles and get those potent pics of Chuck and that girl. This is probably what made him do it. However, it's too late. She had only gotten the pics, but in, in addition, she had not only gotten the pics, but used them in court. They were now a matter of public record. Anyone with a little morbid curiosity wanted to could search up the court records, animate the pics, and make the sequence of Chuck and the Trieste frame making love. End quote. Wow. The, the the legal divorce the divorce court's pretty brutal <clears throat> here like all the pictures get become public record in this case of the, the movies so now the the holy triumvirate project using their powers uh, must be some kind of side powers collectively that they can have they shoot fireballs into the sky and then use these to create messages that are trying to kind of get a peace settlement with Mary Ritterstorff. So there are things like, Dr. Ritterstorff, avoid bloodshed and you'll be permitted to leave us. <clears throat> and then they ask for a reply. 
And then they send up like the make love not war sign. It literally it says cease your warfare and love one another. And then she says, okay, maybe I will do this. Maybe I'll I'll just love my ex-husband Chuck since he's here. Um, now the situation though at Hentman's ship, it's it's Magaboon is trying to arrest Hentman because that's his order too. So he's attacking um, the ship. And then you have Chuck and the slime mold and Annette Golding. And they're trying to make sense of how complex the situ situation is. Um, he sums it up. The Manses are fighting Terra. Magaboon, representing the CIA, is busy shooting it out with Hentman. Mac's wife, Mary, is fighting me. And Hentman is my enemy. Logically, what does this add to? It might be possible to draw up a rational equation. And so he actually goes through, and it takes about three pages for Dick to fully go through all the different competing, con conflicted alliances. And I know it's confusing, and Dick likes to do this all the time. Um, I sometimes think like the plot is less important in these novels than, than the, the setting and the atmosphere and the themes he plays with. But he's trying to find out who's allied at, who's he allied with. That's the one thing he doesn't know. Is he allied with the clans against Terra? No, he works for the CAA and he had help from the CAA, so maybe he's against the clans. You know, is he with Bunny? You know, but Bunny's kind of for the Alphanes and, you know, it's all confused. You know, he's got all these confused alliances. And he can't figure out who he can really, who he's really fighting for. I think, I think essentially we're being told by Dick here that there's no logic in war and there's no logic in statecraft and, and trying to craft alliances. That's all disorder and, and arbitrary. And that you really have to make your decisions based on empathy and moral guidance. I mean, Lord, Lord Running Clan, by making this alliance with Chuck out of his loyalty to Chuck, is a much stronger foundation and a much more stable one and easier to see than than Chuck trying to to logically deduce which which group he's allied to and which which people um, he should fight for. So he kind of finally comes to the conclusion just to try to do the right thing. Um, and as the fighting breaks uh, ends, um, Bunny tries to make peace with Chuck, um, and he tries to explain why they need to make peace with the Alphanes. Now, of course, Bunny does have this long-standing alliance with the Alphans going back to the war. Remember, he was uh, essentially supplying the enemy during the war. So he had this, these friendships with the Alphans. Now, Hentman himself has no choice but to work with the Alphans and to stay on the moon because he's going to be arrested by the CIA eventually, too. So his plan is to basically get the clans to agree to join the Alphane Empire. And be part of them and if we can get the alphanes then to agree which he thinks they can get them to agree to leave them autonomous and not take it over and not subject them to control and not put them back into the mental hospital the clans would agree to join the alphane system so basically give up their i guess their loyalty to terra and become citizens of or subjects of the alphane empire um so that's the plan he has now he's with patty weaver patty's come along so i guess she's going to be stuck on 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 Alpha and Alpha system too. Um, actually, in the middle of this conversation, the very serious conversation w about you know, the future of this planet and the politics of it and all, Chuck is just obsessed with Patty's breasts, and he actually says, and he cuts off this conversation about the CIA and the politics and says she has big breasts. Who, Patty? Oh yes, Hitman nodded. Well, it's that operation they give in Hollywood in New York. It's more the rage now than the dilation. She's had that done too. She would have looked great on that show. Like a lot of things, too bad it didn't work out. You know, I damn near didn't get out of Brahe City. 
They thought they had me, of course. I was tipped off just in time. He glared at Chuck with a nervous accusation. If I can deliver Alphane 3, M2 to the Alphane. So then he goes back to talk about the plots, but, you know, it's just, I think Dick having a little bit of fun with big-breasted women. Um, so that's the deal he gets. And Bunny... Well, Chuck, after hearing this, he decides to make peace himself um, with his own in his own life and he decides not to kill Mary anymore. In fact, Bunny says, if you can help us do this, we'll we'll kill Mary for we don't want to do it, but we'll kill Mary for you if, if that's what it takes. And then Chuck says, well, now we don't have to kill Mary. We can let her live. So then he agrees to go before the council as Magaboom to try to convince the council to accept this deal whereby they would join the Alphane Empire. So then we get to the final chapter of the book. Um, we're, we're back in the council meeting um, where there's slightly different um, agendas here. Um, but the main, like, straw wants to basically round up the council and, and get them all in one place and secure them at Adolfville. Um, but ultimately, it's, what the issue at hand is going to be this proposal by the Magaboom Simulacrum and essentially Chuck to propose the peace. But Baines, again, uses his simulacrum because he's paranoid and he, he sends in the simulacrum first um, to to make the first report about what's what's been happening. And then Chuck comes in, well, Magaboon comes in, so it's essentially Chuck's program, proposing the peace. And the peace that's proposed is essentially that the Alphans will annex the moon, uh, you know, based on the will of the people who live there. Quote, you must formally as the supreme governing body on the moon, at once request the Alphanes to come in and annex. They guarantee not to treat you as hospital patients, but as legitimate settlers. This annexation can be accomplished through the agency of the Hentman ship, since two high-ranking Alphane officials at this moment are. Now, as this happens, the CIA manages to get back control of the simulacrum from Chuck, and then it starts to, it, it kind of breaks down for a while and makes weird noises, and then when it starts talking again, it's talking in a different voice, in a different diction, and starts saying like, this is treasonous, you can't do this, and whatever. But by that point, the, the proposal was already out. Um, so then, the despite the hacking of the Magaboon Simulacrum, the proposal was made, and they all then vote to join the Alphane Empire. And, and you know... All, to asking for essentially sanctuary in the Alphane Empire, which would allow them to live on as independent settlements and communities without uh, being under Terran oppression and terror, and then not being forced back into the the hospital. So it's a fairly satisfying conclusion politically, in that we see an empire's ambitions thwarted by the settlers. And the settlers who see more future for themselves in an international or intercultural uh, interspecies empire, the Alphane Empire, combined with some human former mental patients, we see that it's decided that this was, they're going to be a society. They're not going to be mental patients. They're not going to be a problem that needs to be solved. And um, so many different thread lines get resolved by this rather elegant solution proposed first by Bunny Huntman. Out of self-interest, I mean, Hetman needs a solution to this problem because he can't have Earth taking over the Alphane moon because that'll be the end of his his freedom or maybe even his life. So now we can just kind of close up the last few um, plot, you know, plot issues in the story. Um, Chuck goes to see his wife 
And he finds that Mary was actually having sex with Ignace Labrador. And um, so I think that's three affairs that Mary has over the course of the novel. Chuck only had the one, and maybe something with Annette Golding could have happened, but it doesn't really happen. And they talk about you know, how they're going to fit in on the Alphane moon or whether they should go back. And, and that's basically the heart of the end of the story. Mary, you know, and the, the, the joke is kind of like, well, what tribe would you join? What clan would you join? And Mary thinks that maybe she's a man's, right? She sort of self-diagnoses as, as a man's. And she finds it kind of liberating to admit that she has, has mental problems. And that may explain a lot of her behavior. Chuck insists that he's strictly normal and doesn't have any mental mental problems and he says maybe he'll start a, a normal community a community for norms called thomas jeffersonville or something is what he's going to call it and this will be the norm settlement and he's hoping that maybe people who don't become don't get identified as one of the other clans you know will join the thomas jefferson community but for now it's just a community of one lord running clan and Chuck eventually convinced Mary to perform a psychic evaluation on herself and on others. And they do determine that Chuck is completely normal. He's not subject to any mental illnesses. But Mary is diagnosed not as a man, as a, as a dep, as a dep. And, you know, there's so much self-diagnosis going on in this book or characters diagnosing others. And often it seems they're wrong. Or, you know, I think we got to consider that all these people are misdiagnosed to a degree. Right. When they they're, they're, they kind of get thrown into these different clans based on their behavior and actions. And certainly Mary did exhibit the behavior of a man's at various times in the novel, not really as a depth. So it kind of comes out of left field that she was had a depressive. Um, a depressive character. So Chuck and Mary decide to get back together, although he'll she'll live at uh, Cotton Mather Estates and and Chuck will be at the. Thomas Jeffersonville or whatever he ends up calling it. They talk about how to get the children from Earth to to the moon because they, they do have kids this whole time. I mean, it's, they're not really mentioned much, but um, only in the beginning when she says that you got to help support the kids. But they talk about how to get the kids to the Elfine moon and they can be a regular family again. So they basically get together again. They, they ponder a little bit on the irrationality of love. Um, but the final thought we get here is that this moon can be a frontier again, not just for humanity or for the clans but and for Terra itself, but a frontier for their own relationships. It can be a rebirth of their own um, love affair. He says, or she says, it's Mary. Maybe we'll have more children while we're here on the moon, Mary said, like the slime molds. We arrive, we'll increase in numbers until we become legion, the majority. She laughed in the odd, soft way, and in the darkness, relaxed against him as she has not done in ages. In the sky, the Elfane, moon sh the Elfane ships continued to appear, and both he and Mary remained silent, planning out schemes by which to obtain the children. It would be difficult, he realized soberly, perhaps, even more tricky than anything he had done so far, but possibilities of the remains of the Hentman organization could assist them. Or some of the slime mold's countless business contacts among Terras and the non-Terrans. Both were distinct possibilities. And Hentman's agent, who had infiltrated the CIA, his former boss, Jack Elwood, but Elwood was in jail now. Anyhow, if unhappy enough in their efforts had failed, as Mary had said, they would have had to have more children. This did not make up for the ones they lost, but it would be a good omen, one that cannot be overlooked. Do you love me too? Mary asked, her lips close to his ears. Yes, he said truthfully. And then he said, ouch, because without warning she had bitten him, nearly severing the lobes of his ear. 
That too seemed to him an omen, but of what he could not yet tell. And and that's the end of the novel. So at the end of the novel, we have a, a legitimate frontier experience. You know, the future of, of a bright future for the now well, basically independent um, clans of the Elfane Moon. Now with a new clan uh, for normies and some slime molds there as well. And a comic, a TV comic, Bunny Hentman is going to be hanging out there too with... Um, Patrick Weaven, an actress. They have everything they need now for a, a, a well-functioning society, even even a TV comic. Um, so that's that's the novel. That's my kind of read-through of the novel. Uh, it's a really g- good one. It's so much fun. It's funny, constantly funny. I mean, it, it's just humorous. And you can tell that Dick was having a good time, more so than usual. He's always having a good time, it seems, when he's writing these novels. But this, t- this one in particular, he's got, he's got a lot of fun moments. It's very politically incorrect. I, I don't know if this novel could be written now. With Certainly, I don't think people could, would, could present mental illness this way without being criticized as being, you know, unsensitive to disabilities, I guess. Certainly, we have a lot of people with mental illnesses, you know, presented in very cliche ways. I'm sure none of this would hold up against the modern diagnostic handbook of psychiatric ailments. You know, some of this stuff may be actually more like personality disorders than real mental illnesses, right? Like obsessive compulsiveness or, or depression. These aren't always straight up, you know, mental illnesses the way they're presented here. They're not the kind of things that get you institutionalized in a hospital on a, on a, for, on a different planet's moon. Uh, they'd just be treated with psychotherapy, I guess, now, or drugs. Um, that aside, certainly the way we, we see the entertainment industry presented as, you know, parts exchanged for sex or jobs exchanged for sex is really not politically correct these days. And that with the Harvey Weinstein stuff and Me Too, you know, a lot of basically straight-up sexual harassment uh, talked about in this novel. Uh, the woman, the female body is presented as uh, as something designed just for the male gaze. I mean, I think someone de Beauvoir would be horrified if she were to read this book and see, you know, that the main fashion trends of the day are all there to gratify the the visual needs of men, right? Whether it's dresses with one breast exposed or the breast enlargements, even the massive enlargements, the nipple dilation, whatever. I don't know about the nipple dilation thing. That's not my thing personally but you know maybe some people like it maybe it's dick what dick liked um so yeah the way the relationships described the way the divorced woman is presented as an oppressive force a lot of the stuff would not be i think maybe in a novel even if it could be pulled off in a novel i don't think we're going to see an adaptation of clans of the elfane moon at least not a an honest adaptation because of for these reasons but that's too bad i think um a lot of great stuff here to to think about and ponder. One of my favorite Dick novels. I think it's one of his best on on one of his best on his vision of relationships and um, kind of the broken marriage and and how it can be redeemed. Right? It it takes kind of a rebirth. It takes a conflict. They end up shooting at each other. So th- this is one of the most violent uh, relationships we see in in any of Dick's novels. Literally to the point where they're trying to kill each other. You know, Chuck trying to use a simulacrum to do it. Mary at one point actually shooting at him uh, across the battlefield. That that said, I mean, it ends up kind of touching. They get together when they both realize their faults, uh, and they they kind of bought into this like make love not war rhetoric, which is 
a nice little addition there. Kind of attractive to the hippies, I guess. Um, and I really like the way he presents mental illness as as just yeah, society's mentally ill. I think that's the idea, and that's something that was in discussions of psychotherapy in the 60s. It's really society that's sick. It's not individual people. And if people people don't fit into a sick society, they suddenly get deemed mentally ill. There's a little bit different idea in which each each personality disorder, you know, c- contributes something to society, something that's necessary, whether it's defense or planning and guidance or bureaucracy, bureaucracy. or the idea that if someone is going to be, you know, we admit we need bureaucrats, but this kind of person who can be happy as a bureaucrat, you know, it's going to be a certain personality type, right? That may not be, you know, normal you know, for all, inten- you know, in all situations, right? If someone is obsessive compulsive as a bureaucrat, it's a very good skill to have. If someone's obsessive compulsive in their private life or in their relationships, it becomes a problem, right? But these have functions for our society, I guess, is what it seems to me Dick is trying to say here. And I, I like how he does it. Um, what else here thematically to talk about? Um, uh, certainly the tension between how do you solve psychotherapy, psychological problems? Do you approach it with psycho, psychi- psychiatry, with therapy, or with institutionalization? And this is very much an anti-institutional novel. I mean, the, the, the clans are adamant on not being incorporated back into the, the hospital. They, they insist on that. They fear that more than anything else. Um, we have here a, a discussion also of empire. Um, we got competing empires, the Alphanes, a defeated empire, and then the Terrans, a, a conquering one. The politics of this is a little bit confusing for me because Terra fought this war with Alphanes, but Terra is also divided between communists and non-communists. So I don't know if it was just like the, the West that defeated that war, or were the communists and the non-communists able to get together for this war? Um, I'm not sure, but... Uh, nevertheless, the, the, the fighting over the squabbling over this frontier zone and this, this territory, uh, you know, the nature of empire to expand and to want to acquire new territory, regardless of the interests and the desires of the people who live there. Right. Even if it means those people have to be essentially put in a prison, if that's what it takes to reestablish control over the empire, so be it. Um, instead of empire, we're given then frontier again as a, a model, an optimistic model. Right. We need to settle and, and give new blood to these areas, right? Bring in the normies, bring in the slime molds, bring in the bunny huntmen, bring in kind of a new life to this moon. It's not saying that all the problems in the moon, or there's no problems on the moon. It just needs to be treated as a true frontier in order to be uh, a sustainable civilization in the future. Uh, We have a lot in this book, obviously, about marriage and adultery. I've already talked about that. at least at least four acts of adultery, if not more. And then Bunny Hentman talks about some of his own affairs. The media is an interesting uh, case here. Uh, we have the news media questioning Mary and her motives early on, but we don't get that much about news here. Uh, I think that we get a really good look, though, in like the entertainment industry with Bunny Hentman. And it's not, you know, it's something I, I kind of wish Dick wrote more about. I, I'd like to know more of his thoughts on this. It's not presented in the most flattering way, um, but um, we we have an entertainer as a major character. We're going to have it again with Dr. Blood Money and, and a few other works in which actors and comedians and performers can be major characters in, in larger stories. 
Um, some minor themes. Uh, Post-humanism is mentioned uh, just in the form that of size. We have precognition talked about. We have Joan Trieste who has psi power. But again, these are, these are presented not as transformative things that are going to disrupt humanity. They're presented simply as different jobs that people need to have. Joan Trieste just falls away from the story after saving Chuck's life and they go to and he goes to the alpha system. So we don't know what happens to her. She's probably going to keep working for the police. The simulacrum here are not presented in a very profound way. They're simply programmed. They're just shells. In fact, we're told at one point they're, they're just shells. They're just robots if they're not programmed. So nothing too interesting about the simulacrum, but they're here and can be compared to the simulacrums we see in We Can Build You and Do I Dream of Electric Sheep, where they have a little bit more subjectivity. Fashion is a big theme here, um, and they seem to be, it seems to be rapidly changing and involved heavily with body modification. So body modification is a big part of fashion in this future, and uh, that's something he dealt with, I think, in the Chromium Fence, although there it was about kind of a transhumanist kind of perfection being achieved uh, with no kind of body odor or, or dirt or disgusting things. Metal teeth, that's something Dick does a lot, is these metal teeth. You know, I guess metal dentures, I guess because there's a permanency to them. Stainless steel teeth. They were in the simulacrum. I don't see. I don't remember seeing them here. Here we get the nipple dilation and the breast implants. Um, so yeah, there, there's probably a lot more themes, but I've been going on about this novel long enough. So this is my first try at a one-off episode for a whole novel, and it took me took me two and a half hours almost to do this. So it's not too bad for a podcast. Uh, maybe I'll try that again with the next novel, The Penultimate Truth, and see how it goes. Um, if, if I like it this way, it's just more efficient for me to just do like, you know, sit down and, and do one episode a week rather than, you know, a lot of little ones. Um, so, yeah, I think I'll, I'll do this again just because my schedule is going to be tighter in the future and I may not, you know, have the time to, to do a lot of little episodes. Um, but anyways, I, I really like this novel. Um, I encourage people to read it. It's, yeah, it's, it may be offensive to some people, so there's, I guess, warnings about that. But if, you know, if, if you're easily offended, Dick's not the person to read, to be honest. Um, so that, that does it. Um, please leave your own thoughts about this book below. I would very much love to hear from you about your experience with this novel. Uh, any of the themes I talked about, what are your thoughts about it? Um, you know, is there things I missed? Please do uh, leave me comments there, too, uh, about that as well. If you have your own if you want to send me an email you can do that at 100 pagescast at gmail.com and i would love to 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 get your emails um that's it so um we got one more novel published in 1964 to look at the fourth novel and that will be the penultimate truth now, i don't know the order these novels were published in like over the course of the year i just picked it at random but you know these all can kind of be taken together, published essentially at the same time. So The Penultimate Truth is next. That will also be a one-off episode where I'll look at the whole novel. There, the themes are really going to be much more media, about the media, about the government role of the media, over the media, and urban planning in the city. And, and we'll have a lot to say about that. So um, thanks again for listening. Thanks for bearing with me as I do a very long episode. Um, but that's what I'm going to try for now. Um, so, yeah, I'll see you next time with my comments and my review of The Penultimate Truth.
Contentment forever If you're